People like you, organizations like Rave Check, I love you guys. Welcome, everybody, to this very special edition of the Ramp Check Podcast. I'm Tony. I'm Aaron. And I'm Ryan. Today is uh, Wednesday, the uh, 11th, and that date is uh, special significance. We'll tell you why in a moment, but we just put... Another episode of the Ramp Check podcast out, uh, episode number 61. But um, since today, November 11th, is Veterans Day. We wanted to just throw out to you guys a very special episode of the podcast, which highlights some of our, well, actually most of our uh, military veterans that we've had as guests on the podcast. Yes, vet- yeah. veterans and active, right? There is a difference, right? Yes, we want to yeah. recognize <laughs> our active duty friends and our veterans at the same time. So, um, right. well, someday, someday they'll be classified as a veteran. They, exactly, you said duty. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I personally am a veteran and uh, have been thanked for my service. So you're very welcome, and to all the veterans out there as well, and are active members of the military. And when I say active, I mean our National Guardsmen, our reservists, and of course our active duty uh, military out there as well. Right, absolutely. And thank you for your service, brother. Well, you're welcome. And thank you for- thanks, brother. And thank you for (laughs) thanking me for my service. So, um, (laughs) Yeah, do you- you, Can, can I maybe take a second and just touch on this for really quick and, and my my thoughts? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. I just didn't want to step on your guys' toes here. But, um, yeah, so, you know, I was thinking about uh, Veterans Day um, earlier today just because there have been some uh, posts come up on, like, my social media about it and everything. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I got to admit, I got – I had I had like a moment today where I got a little emotional and the reason for that is just with everything that seems to be going on in the country with with so much uh negativity towards the overall feeling of like uh the United States and you know as far as like people saying not not taking pride in their country and problems with people burning flags and and I'm not even getting political because if someone has a problem with me talking about burning a flag, honestly, they can just really go to hell. I don't care about that. <laughs> what I do care about is the fact that, you know, I really just had a thought today about what it takes to be in the military. And I just had this overwhelming feeling of like gratitude of all the people that are serving, all the ones that did put their lives on the line so that. You know, we can be here and and just so that I can live the life that I have. And none of it happens without, you know, our, our servicemen and women and our military. And uh, so for me, I just want to say, you know, thanks to the veterans. And I know you guys feel the same and you'll probably have some thoughts, too. But I just had a, a little bit of a an emotional moment today where I was so grateful to live in the country I do. And. You know, I want to instill that in others, and I hope that we can 
go forward in a positive direction and just freaking unite as Americans and just move forward, baby. Like I, yeah. I wish, I wish nothing but the best for our country. And I know, I know it'll, I know it will go that way regardless. Well said, brother. Well said. Thanks. Thanks. Aaron, do you want to add to that at all? Yeah. Or? Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, Ryan pretty much, you know, hit the nail on the head with that one. Um, I I get emotional about stuff like this all the time just because, you know, how important and, and how proud I am, you know, as an American. And even though I'm not a veteran, um, you know, and it just, you know, I take pride in knowing that I know veterans and uh, mm-hmm. and that I support them. And whether, again, whether they're, uh, you know, active now in the military or, uh, you know, they are out of the military and a veteran. Um, everything that that we hold dear here in this country is all because of them. And mm-hmm. uh, period. I mean, we don't have United States of America without our amazing men and women in the military. Um, they give us everything that, that we have. Uh, all the opportunities that we have, we owe to them. Um, you know, and, you know, I, I really want just to express how, you know, impressive, you know, so many veterans um, and active duty military um gosh i'm like getting all emotional now i'm like totally <laughs> you know it's all good. trying to get these get these words out but it's 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 just pride i guess for for me um mm-hmm. to to honor the veterans and honor our military um you know i as a civilian i couldn't be you know prouder to support uh, each and every one of you and, and each and every one of them. Um, it's, uh, it, it is overwhelming at times to, you know, to think of, you know, you know, life goes up and down and, uh, you know, the country goes up and down and, but we can always rely on our military to be there, uh, to keep us safe and to, to, to know that, if if there is an enemy that does want to do harm to us, um, we've got the best military in the world, or the best equipped, the best trained, um, the best minds, and uh, yeah, thank God to all of them. And and I'm talking, I mean, we're losing our World War II veterans every day. I mean, I I don't even mm-hmm. know what the number is, but uh, you know, all these wars throughout the years, um, whether it's you know. World War II, you know, fighting, you know, Nazis and world domination, you know, whether it's Vietnam, um, you know, Korea, you know, trying to spread the, um, you know, communism around the world, um, you know, Desert Storm, you know, evil dictators in the Middle East to, you know, current conflicts now against the war on terror. Um, we, we owe everything to our military and our veterans. And I'll probably just leave it at that. Absolutely. <laughs> well, well said. I yeah, very well said, brother. Um, I remember after I enlisted in the air force, 
Uh, I arrived at basic training. I was like, oh, shit, what did I do? <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, but yeah, I you, remember. You wanted to be a veteran in one day, right? In and yeah, out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was ready to be a veteran after about three hours. But um, <laughs> uh, basic training was challenging, and it's challenging for a reason. But I do remember the first morning that they woke us up for you know, morning reverie or whatever, whatever it's called. And we're sitting there, we're standing in formation and, you know, the flag is up and you hear the trumpets. And I remember I just had tears streaming down my face. So I love our country. There's certain elements of our country that absolutely suck right now. There are certain elements of our country that will always remain great. And Part of that is because of our service members, uh, both active and, of course, uh, inactive, which would be our veterans. So um, thank you once again to all of our veterans, no matter what role you play, what, what no matter what uh, branch you serve in. Thank you for standing between us and the bad guys. Tell you what, instead of rambling on and on, Let's hear from uh, some of our favorite guests of the Ramp Check podcast. What do you say, brothers? And and when I say our favorite, I mean I. It's all of our military guests, so <laughs> but they're all our favorite. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. All right, here we go, everybody. Without further ado, welcome to this special edition of the Ramp Check podcast. <laughs> hey, Pete, we are thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thanks for taking some time to to kick up your feet, maybe uh, pop a couple of cold ones, and uh, and and let's talk Av Geek stuff. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Well, well, hey, gents, it's it's my absolute pleasure to be here. Um, I, I am a huge fan. Uh, I stumbled on you on Instagram and instantly went down the ramp check rabbit hole. All of the all of the stuff that you guys are into. So, you know, I've you know been the love the website, love all the swag, uh, love the podcast. And as a matter of fact, I gotta tell you a funny story, Matt. Um uh I was listening to the uh the first podcast that you did with uh Sluggo, Mark Hasera. And I'm I'm mm -hmm. I'm in my truck, I'm driving like an idiot, just like I always do, on my way to to Newark because I've got an I've got an airline trip to fly right, and I've now dudes I've I've done this drive like literally a, a million friggin' times right. I could do it with my right. I could do it with my eyes closed. You know, it's just the truck knows where it's going. I mean, just pure autopilot. Right. It's like sometimes I'll get to Newark and I don't even remember crossing the George Washington. <laughs> yeah. Like, and I, I I know I know I had to right. And right. So, anyway, so here I am hauling the mail. Uh, listening to the podcast and I blow by my freaking exit for Newark. I'm so engrossed in your podcast and listening to Sluggo. I'm like, God damn it. Oh my God. So, uh, <laughs> hey, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, well, thanks, dude. And, and then, and then, you know, just slap me silly. You guys interviewed my idiot friend, you know, Chris Holmes, who I love. Yeah. There you know, go. Yeah, he was fine. And, he I was mean, fun. I just I, I, and remind me later on. I'll tell you about flying the L thirty nine with him. What a, a just an absolute riot. But um, so and, and oh. you know, do, you know, Chris, like I was joking about in, on Instagram. I don't know who he threw under the bus, you or me, to get to get you know to get me <laughs> on your podcast. Well, I tell I tell you what, man. You, you know what? I'm probably the most comfortable with is if you use my 
Air Force call sign, which was PIG, P-I-G, Papa India oh. Golf. And uh, remind oh, yeah. me, I'll, I'll tell you that story. That's hysterical. Perfect. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> All right, PIG, here we go. So <laughs> there you um, go. We, we just I'm uncomfortable. With, anyway, go Should ahead. we just start out with that one? <laughs> With pig, with pig? how you became known okay. as pig? Yeah, let's let let's just start out with the pig story, and then we'll uh, we'll circle around. All right, all right. Well, well, here it comes. And and let me just caveat this by saying that all of the women in my life hate this fucking story. Okay, <laughs> all right. They just, I mean, it's that bad. All right, but it's not like, but it's not bad. Like like you're probably thinking it's bad. It's just fucking funny. So so anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and a couple years ago, I wrote the entire narrative out uh, on a kind of aviation website uh, as a post, and it made it all the way around the freaking globe, all the way through the interweb and back to me in an email with you know one line that said, is this you? I'm like, yeah, that's me. So, <laughs> so, oh, it's, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's classic. So, so okay. Here, so here's the story. Um, when I graduated Luke... Uh, Air Force Base and my F-16 course, I was a young, you know, all dick, no forehead lieutenant, right? Brand new <laughs> fighter pilot, right? Yeah. Hair on fire, right? Hair on fire. So my my first operational <laughs> squadron was with the 19th Fighter Squadron at Shaw in Sumter, South Carolina. So I drove all the way from Phoenix, you know, with, you know, and all the way to Shaw. Now, my wife was already uh, a 141 pilot stationed just down the road in Charleston and she cool. had found a house for us. Yeah. And she was already gone on some Mac trip by the time I got to South Carolina. So m my one and only sibling, my older brother uh, it was living in uh, Columbia, South Carolina at the time, which is just up the road from Shaw. So I crashed with him the, you know, the night before I was supposed to report in for my, uh, my new assignment and we just freaking partied like rock stars that night you know it was just like, <laughs> ridiculous you know i mean oh my god so i woke up you know the next morning just feeling like ass you know sweaty you know sweaty butt crack you know <laughs> you know you know yeah mouth is like an ashtray from all the cigars yeah. smoked right it's like oh yeah. my god i mean the last thing i want to do is go report to my new duty station but i gotta do it right so i put my freaking you know flight suit on now no it's july in south carolina okay it's oh hot, yeah right humid yeah it's like, so i pull my boots on you know god, oh god damn it, i gotta go so I jump in my black car <laughs> and, uh, it's like you know, a toaster in there you know and i i drive through the main gate at shaw and and i, I kind of know where i'm going uh because i kind of read the welcome to shaw package so i, I but previous to my arrival the, the entire air base had been flattened by hurricane hugo right oh, so wow. all, yeah yeah so all of the flying squadrons were living out of temporary facilities that they all had constructed. So each squadron had a group of basically double wide trailers that were mm. all interconnected. You know, yeah. And so each squadron might have four or five trailers and they were, they were all kind of interconnected by this pressure treated deck and walkway system. So I pull up to this pile of double wide trailers, which is my new squadron. And I'm just sweating beer. I feel like hell, you know, <laughs> like, Oh God. And I know I'm not going to do anything. 
on the first day yeah. other than just kind of in process, right? So uh-huh. this enlisted guy goes, you know, so this enlisted guy goes walking by and I go, hey man, and he salutes me like, yeah, okay, whatever. Hey dude, I'm, I'm, <laughs> <he's>, uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey man, I, I'm I'm Pete Fleischman. I'm the I'm the FNG, right? Uh, can you tell me where the vault is? And he goes, "Yes, sir. Follow me." And the reason I want to know where the vault is now, every fighter squadron has what's known as the vault, and and in a no kidding full up fighter squadron building, it no shit looks like a bank vault with the big freaking door. I'm not kidding you, and everything, mm-hmm. and that's where all the classified shit is cap uh-huh right? okay uh, okay and and as the new guy i know that my first job is going to be to get up to speed on the squadron's real world tasking and that all, all that shit is classified so i got to start studying that stuff right away and i also know that all of my idiot friends from luke that i went through f-16 training with that beat me there by a couple days are already in the vault studying so I'm, i figure if i can find the vault I can find my bros. They can give me the lay of the land. They can tell me what to do, and I'll, I'll be off and running, right? So I say, hey, where's the vault? Well, follow me, sir. So he takes me into this double-wide trailer, right? <laughs> and I'm like, and, and every step is painful because I'm just wicked hungover, right? I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God. And we're going deeper and deeper into the bowels of this double-wide trailer. And as we get deeper, it's getting hotter and more humid, right? And he, he points at this door at the end of the trailer goes, there's the vaults there. I'm like, thanks man. And I walk in there and there's this tiny little room, no windows. Right. And it's hot as hell in there. Oh, and it's God. like, and it's, and there's like classified shit everywhere. I mean, it's, it's on top of file cabinets. It's spilling out of boxes. I mean, it's totally, it looks like totally unsecure. <laughs> I'm like, this can't, but I'm so hungover. I don't even care. Right. And, and, <laughs> and, and there's one, leather couch in there and there are three dudes in flight suits sitting there studying 3-1 which is our classified threat manual and they're sitting shoulder to shoulder two of the dudes i know the guy in the middle is rb gibbons right rb gibbons and i go hey rb and he puts his book down he looks up at me goes hey pete welcome to shaw man how was your drive high five and i, I can feel this beer fart welling up <laughs> right Right, I can, right, I can, I can feel it. I can feel it coming. Right, so like the idiot lieutenant that I am, I lean forward and I go, "Hey, RB, man, pull my finger. Put my, pull my finger." Right. Oh my god. So he goes. So he, he he kind of shrugs. He goes, "Yeah, sure." Leans forward and honks on my finger, and I honk out the hottest, nastiest beer fart (laughs) in the history of beer fart. Right, startled <laughs> woodland creatures for miles. <laughs> oh right? my god! So, yeah. So, so, so instantly filled this tiny little windowless room, July, South oh, Carolina. Oh my god! It. I mean, instantly filled it with ass smell. Right, just <laughs> horrible, <laughs> heinous. So, so everybody bails out. Right, they they throw their books. They're like they're gagging. And they're running for the door and they're, they're bumping into me in their, in their, in their, in their haste, right? To get the hell out of there. And they're laughing, they're laughing hysterically, right? And in that, in that, in that nanosecond, it occurred to me that, yeah, it's, it's funny, but it's not that funny. Something else is going on, right? Oh no. Split second, split second later, I get hit in the back of the head 
by something really hard and it knocks me to the ground like to, on all fours and now all these three dudes are howling in laughter and i hear this female voice go you're a oh. fucking pig and, <laughs> and, and i Oh yeah, and I, I look up from the ground, and there's a female in BDUs with captain's rank on her collar, and she's got a metal three ring three ring binder, and she's coming oh. down with it again. It cracks, slams oh. me inside of the head with this thing. Right, I'm like Jesus oh, Christ. No. Well, well, come to find out, you know, a couple minutes later, that that woman that was beating me to death with the metal three ring binder was Sarah, our in, our intel officer. And she was in there the whole, oh. she was in there the, the whole time. I, I never, I never saw her because she was on her hands and knees spreading out some, uh, some files on the, on the floor. So I walked uh -huh. right past her, never, never saw her. And then she turned like 90 degrees, right? So her face was like an oh. inch from my tailpipe, right? Oh, and, and, no. and so, so that's all behind oh, me and our, and our, and freaking R.B. Gibbons saw the whole setup and still pulled my finger. He's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and so, so, I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, right? So anyway, she never, she never, she never forgave me. So, I mean, I've been there like five minutes and I got a call sign already. So, oh, so, man. so anyway, so for the rest, you know, the rest of that day, you know, you, you got this big checklist of, you know, all these uh -huh. processing things you have to do. You know, you got to go to military pay. You got to go see the flight doc, all this crap. The very last uh -huh. thing, the very last item on the list is go meet the squadron commander. Right? After you've done all this other stuff, go meet the squadron commander. Oh, no. So, oh, yeah. So, like, by 4 <laughs> o'clock in the afternoon, I find the squadron commander's office. The door is open. Moose Irving, love this guy. He's sitting behind his desk. He's got these little half-reading glasses on his nose. I, I went to, like you know, knock on the door once and report in in a military manner. He didn't, he didn't even look up. I don't even know how he knew I was there he, without <laughs> looking up. He just raises, he raises his hand, shows me his palm and goes, don't bother. I've already heard about you. Get the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh my God. Oh. <laughs> That's definitely oh, the, yeah. the best oh. call sign story I've heard so wow. far. Yeah, I've laughed out hard in a while. <laughs> those those pre-party <laughs> mud parts are bad. <laughs> oh, dude. And what's, what was so funny, what was so funny about Moose, the squatter commander, is he never knew what my first name was, ever ever oh. my parents came down to visit you know i'm giving him a tour of the squad and he walks up to me he puts his arm around me he goes you know we really love uh pig <laughs> no, I have no idea. uh it was the 20th of october 2018 it was a beautiful day to fly and um i had a, a a young gal female student in the back it was her first jet ride ever right um, she's a pilot, uh -huh. but had, you know, didn't have any, any jet stink on her. So we were going to take the airplane out and turn, you know, 300 gallons of jet fuel into just ridiculous fun, right? Just nice. All, all, you know, just ring the airplane out, right? So, uh, br you know, briefing went smoothly, all that stuff. She was pretty fired up. And, uh, I go ripping down the runway for takeoff, <clears throat> runway 24 at Bridgeport, Connecticut, where the airplane, uh, is based or was based. Um, and uh, rotate, break ground, uh, lean forward to put the gear handle up and raise the landing gear. And before I can get my hand to the gear handle, Rob, the tower controller, who's a friend of mine, keys the mic and goes, hey, Pete, you just lost a wheel. Oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah. Never want to hear and, that. And that. 
<laughs> right? And 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 that that was that was my reaction too. I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding. So I, 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 so I literally look, I look at the tower and I put my visor up and I, I kind of do one of those, you know, like point, you know, kind of jab my head at him. Like, are you fucking kidding me? And, um, <laughs> right. right? I, 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 don't know, I don't know why. It's not like he can see me. So, yeah. um, so, you know, needless to say, I did not put the gear handle up. I left the gear down and, and I left the flaps where I left the flaps where they were too, in case. They might have been damaged, but I, I, I had no idea that I that I had lost a wheel. So I keyed the mic and I said, "Can you be more specific?" Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, by this point, I was you know past the departure end of the runway, going 160 knots, and he said, "No, nah, I, I can't tell, but it's it's one of your main wheels. I'm not sure which one." And I said, "All right, man, I'm going to circle back around in the north. I'm going to come down the runway at 500 feet. Take another look for me." So I circle back around to the north. I come down the runway, and as I'm flying past the tower, he goes, yeah, it's your right main wheel. I said, Rob, are you saying wheel or tire, dude? Because those are two totally different things. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, really. Right? Right? And he goes, no, man, you got a bare gear strut on the right side. The entire wheel's gone. You got oh, a wheel. Yeah, yeah. You got a good left main with a wheel and a tire, and you got a good nose with a, you know, a strut and a tire. So now I had a mental picture in my head, right, of what's going on. Because there's no caution light, no indicator light. And, you know, the cockpit says, you lost a wheel. You lost a wheel. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. Doesn't, doesn't exist, right? So, so your, you know, your brain goes into high beta at that point, right? Um, so I said, okay, hey, clearly this is an emergency. So I declared an emergency and I told Rob, hey, man, I'm going to, I'm going to, pump out to the east here and I'm going to go orbit over Charles Island, which is a known VFR landmark for all the other traffic. I said, I'm going to set up an orbit there at 2,500 feet. Just keep everybody out of my way. I got to sort some shit out. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, now I've been, you know, I, I, I've been flying airplanes for a long, long time. I've had a lot of crazy stuff happen. Um, and I can tell you that, I mean, in this particular case, it wasn't a, it was not a time critical emergency. I wasn't on fire. Right. I wasn't running out of gas. The engine was running fine. I had good hydraulics. I had electrical power, right? I, I had a, I had an airplane full of fuel, right? So mm -hmm. I had some time, I had some time to kind of get my shit together. And there is a formula for handling any emergency in an airplane. And I don't care what your emergency is, but there are three basic dance steps that the Air Force taught me, and they are universally applicable, and they are in order. Maintain aircraft control. Somebody's got to fly the airplane all the time. Right. All the time. Mm -hmm. Right. All the time. No matter what mm -hmm. else is going on, got to fly the jet, fly the jet, fly the jet. So maintain aircraft control. Analyze the situation. Figure out, you know, figure out what your freaking problem is. And then take the appropriate action. And then land as soon as conditions dictate. That's or that's actually four, right? So that's it. Yeah. So yeah. so so when you when you apply mm -hmm. that formula, I mean, there's already a framework for you to work through the issue, right? So got to fly the airplane, fly the airplane, fly the airplane first. But so so then analyze the situation. Okay. Well, I had this mental picture in my head based on what you know Rob had told me of what my situation was, and I knew I I knew in my core what I had to do. I knew it, but I just had to hear myself say it out loud, right? I just so <laughs> yeah. 
God damn it. Right. So I, I set up this orbit. I got the airplane all trimmed up. Everything's cool. Gear's still hanging. And I've got my checklist, you know, strapped to my mm-hmm. right leg. And I flip it open to the, to the emergency section. And then I flip it a little deeper to the landing emergencies. And the very first page there is landing with a blown main tire. I'm like, well, that doesn't really apply, but I'll read it just in case there's anything I can glean from this, right? So I read it. No, it doesn't really apply. I flip the page, and there it is in big bold print, belly landing. I'm like, fuck. Oh, <laughs> damn. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I, I, I knew that's what I had to do because – it really, it is not a landable configuration, right? Because the L39 doesn't have the greatest brakes in the world anyway. So, okay. and now I'm missing, right? So I'm missing an entire right main wheel assembly. So I know that there, you know, the brakes, there's no brake over there, right? Mm-hmm. So if I landed in that configuration, I, I had no confidence that the only brake that I had on the left main would overcome the drag from that bare gear strut on the page, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So then that's, so then, you know, that's a pretty easy scenario to envision. You get pulled off in the direction of the drag off the pavement into the grass, that bare gear strut digs into the grass. And then there's a tumbling oh, fireball, yeah. right? Right. Tumbling yeah. fireball yeah. and, and to, <laughs> to, faith, to fatality, right? So not, yes. not a really attract, a really attractive option. So, uh, and landing in the grass gear up is not an attractive option either. I had so many people ask me, why, why did you land on the pavement? Why didn't you land in the grass? And that's a very simple answer. The pavement, mm-hmm. the runway is a very even, predictable, hard surface, right? The grass, okay. not so much, not so much, man. It, it undulates. There are chuck holes. There are, there are storm drains. There's all kinds of shit that could flip the airplane, right? So mm-hmm. the grass is a very bad idea. And, and, um, and that's kind of an airmanship thing. But I'm surprised how many times I get asked that question. You know, why didn't you land in the grass? Yeah, I, I, I guess they, they just think that being the grass, you know, I mean, you could slide on grass and bare knees and be fine. They're, they're not realizing how easy a divot can turn an airplane like that going that speed. <laughs> yeah, you, you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So, uh, you know, once I kind of said it out loud to myself, hey, we got to come in, gear up. Uh, I, brief, you know, I, I briefed my student in the back. She did great. You know, I, I had to talk her off the ledge a little bit. Um, <laughs> right. But I was like, hey, you know, yeah. this is no big. And, and I told her a massive bold faced lie. I'm like, I've done this before. Don't worry about it. <laughs> 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 right. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. Uh, she's like, she's like, oh, OK. Oh, OK. She didn't ask when. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, but I, I've done this before. Don't worry about it. It's really not yeah. that big a deal. The airplane's going to go straight down the runway. And, mm-hmm. and I told her, just, be, you know, just be thinking about how you want to get out of the airplane. You know, remember, slower is faster, right? Don't rush and screw something up. Just be slow and deliberate. Yeah. And so it kind of gave her a briefing and uh, put the gear up. The gear came up nice and clean. And I keyed the mic. I told Rob, hey, man, when you're ready for me, I'm coming in gear up on runway 24 and this will be a full stop. Ha, ha, ha. Um, <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah. Well, so you so did he, say ten percent of your. <laughs> yeah. So. Nice. Yeah. So so it took him a while to kind of position all the uh, uh, firefighting equipment and stuff, right? So when he said you you know you're ready, we're ready for you down here, man. I, I flew a nice long straight in stabilized approach, and it's really mm-hmm. it's really a weird feeling to be coming down final, knowing that you're going to land 
with the gear up and the gear horn is blowing the whole time. Oh, trying to yeah. tell you to put you put you know put your put your gear down, idiot. You know, because the jet oh, you know yeah. somewhat smart. It, it realizes that you're low to the ground and you got mm-hmm. some flap, you know, you got landing flaps out. And you, so that's kind of kind of surreal. And then what was really, really weird was in the flare, when you fly through that point that you're used to feeling the wheels touch the runway and you just mm-hmm. keep coming, right? That mm-hmm. sucks. That's a shitty feeling, right? <laughs> so yeah, so my my plan was, and it worked out pretty well, was um, to shut the engine off as soon as I knew that I was on the ground because I didn't want to fod the engine out, right? Yeah. So I, I I was speed brakes up. The speed brakes are on the belly of the airplane. I didn't want to destroy them either. So I came in gear up, full flaps, and when I when I heard the trailing edges of the flaps touch the runway, I shut the engine off immediately and then just gently flew the nose to the runway. And mm. God damn it, that, that airplane, what a great, tough little airplane, man. It, it, it went straight down the runway. Um, and there is a sound that God reserves only for an airplane sliding <laughs> on its belly on a freaking <laughs> runway. It was the most heinous <laughs> sound I've ever heard in my life, right? God, oh. it was loud as hell. Oh, it was horrible. But um, and I could smell I could smell the smoke. I could kind of see the flames that were coming up from the belly and my peripheral vision. And I'm thinking, OK, I can I I got a fire bottle I could blow. It's really for the engine, but it might help. I mean, again, your brain's in high beta, right? So your right, brain yeah. is, is just is just cranking. But you also have that temporal distortion, too, which is really, really weird. But mm-hmm. you know, the airplane came to a stop and very slowly and deliberately got all my shit together. And, and as I was climbing out, the fire department was shooting the airplane with foam. Um, and, uh, and you know, Bob's your uncle that, you know, that, that was it. And what was really, really funny, you know, all these kind of, kind of surreal things was I remember stepping out of the cockpit, you know, throwing uh-huh. my left leg over the side and hitting the runway. I'm like, God, that's weird, man. Cause you're oh, so used to going, be, you know, yeah. right. Yeah. So you're so used to you know, down. going down, you know, yeah, <laughs> going down a ladder, you know, I'm like, God, that's just bizarre, man. And looking down into my cockpit. Um, but there was a, uh, there were, in addition to all the fire trucks, there were two, uh, police cruisers from the city of Bridgeport on the runway. And so, you know, the paramedics had to check me out. The fire chief came over, talked to me. Everybody was awesome. Uh, and then eventually this, patrolman came over to me and he said hey i need to take a statement from you and i'm like uh really because it's kind of obvious what what happened here so you know and he had his book out like you know that book that they write traffic tickets with right yeah yeah and and he's and he's writing he's writing on his book i'm like what could you possibly be writing right i know am i getting a ticket or whatever so he he tears it up (laughs) It's hysterical. He, he tears it off of his book and he hands it to me and he goes, "Hey, up in the corner, there's a there's a phone number. If you have any questions, am I am I getting a, am I getting a ticket?" He goes, "No." But on this little on this little piece of paper, he had written "airplane crash landing." It's probably the only one of those he's ever going to write in his career. <laughs> so shortly after the after the merger with United and Continental was announced, I get this phone call from a buddy of mine. Uh, Paul Kozabinski, who's a great dude. He was a new hire classmate of mine at United. He's just a great dude. Awesome pilot. Mm-hmm. And, and he was working in the flight. Yeah, he was working in the flight office down in Dulles. He goes, hey, Pig, I need you to do me a favor. I'm like, dude, for you, anything. He goes, I need you to go down to Houston, to the domicile down there, and uh, teach all these Continental pilots how to use the iPad that we're using in the cockpit. 
And I was like, oh, God, okay, sure. So so me and and because Continental had they didn't have the iPad yet, so but we were merging, so they needed to learn how to use this, right? So me and five other United guys, we go down to the Houston domicile, which was pretty much all Continental guys and gals, and, mm-hmm. and that was our job. We were like literally uncreating pallets of iPads and activating them and showing these for starters, the instructors and their standards captains how to use the iPads. So so we have we did have some time on our hands, so. One of my buddies goes, hey, man, why don't we go over to the training center here in Houston, which was at the time Continental's training center, and uh, we'll go fly the 787 sim. Mm. Yeah, cool idea. Yeah, cool idea. So um, we hooked up with the Continental 787 fleet captain. I don't remember. He was like ah, from Sweden or Finland or he had a really heavy accent. I think his name was Lars. Good (laughs) dude. And, And we're like flying around in his, you know. $30 $30 million toy, the simulator, we're doing, you know, it's cool. We're doing approaches. We're doing touchy goes and all that kind of stuff. And we're just about done. I think Lars has kind of run out of uh, uh, enthusiasm for these United guys. And I'm sitting in the <laughs> left seat of the 787. And he says to me, anything else you want to do? Give me 20,000 feet and cut me loose. Yeah, I know where it's going. That's, <laughs> That's ex- that's exactly what I said. I said, Lars, can you run me up to about 20 oh, Sure, for you, I can do that. So he does. He cuts me loose. And I do this big old freaking barrel roll. And it was a piece of cake because the 787's got this beautiful wide-angle HUD with a flight path vector in it and everything. It was just money, right? So I fly, And he loses his shit. Oh. He loses his freaking mind. Like hits the emergency stop button on the sim. The sim settles. He's like yelling and screaming and carrying on. And we're all like sheepishly shuffling out of the sim. And all my buddies are like, thanks a lot, asshole. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> well, you know, was, like, he was so mad at me. Oh, my God. So mad at me. So I figured, oh, okay. Well, I'm probably going to get a phone call from my chief pilot right about that one. But Yeah. Never did. But so I can tell you that, yeah, you can do aerobatics in the 787. Yep. It, it was, it, it was, it was a pretty, it was, a, it was an interesting time, but yeah, no kidding. I mean, we got, we got shot at every day and there was, there's, there was one SA6 battery mm-hmm. that was west of Talil that would, would, would light us up all the time. And now the SA6 is a very good missile. That's what shot down Scott O'Grady mm. in Bosnia, right? It's a, it's a very sophisticated missile. So when that thing lights up, it gets your attention, right? And so we would do these kind of like show of force packages where we'd put a huge strike package together, armed, armed, you know, for bear. And we just kind of fly all around Iraq, just basically trying to taunt them. Um, and more, just about every day when we would do that, this SA-6 battery west of Talil would light us up. Everybody does the funky chicken, you know, and then they would shut it off. And it got to be kind of fucking irritating after you know, a couple <laughs> yeah. of weeks of that shit. Yeah. So, so uh, again, I'm flying with Bebop on this particular day. Uh, and sure as hell, the SA-6 comes up. Everybody's raw gear goes off. Everybody fucking does the funky chicken. Everybody, you know, blah, you, you know, kind of. Anyway. And then they shut it off. And I said, God damn it. Oh, fucking guys. So Bebop and I, it's time to hit the tanker. So we hit the tanker. And we come out of the tanker, and <laughs> I figure we're gonna we're we're gonna you know head back to our you know head back to our route and press on. But all of a sudden, I see Bebop's nose come way down. Now I'm in you know 
again, tactical formation, 9,000 feet line abreast. I'm a good wingman. Bebop's ramping down. I'm like, what is he doing? But I got to stay in formation. So I shove the nose down. And now we're going supersonic, man. We're just hauling the freaking mail. We're coming down like a set of car keys. I'm like, <laughs> what the hell are we doing? Right? We're coming down. We're coming down. Not a word from Bebop. Huh. Not a freaking word. So we're here we were just hauling ass like, you know, a gorilla with gasoline underpants running through hell. Right. Here we come. <laughs> and I I look out in the I look out to the in the front of the windscreen. And now I got it. I know what we're doing. There is Talil Air Force Base. Right. Mm. And it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I'm like, holy shit, we're going to sonic boom. These oh. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. So cool. <laughs> dudes we we went smoking across that that iraqi air force base i don't know 1.5 oh, 1.6 oh, oh, oh that oh. woke him up dudes <laughs> dudes it, it was it was ridiculous and now i'm laughing like a school yeah. girl, right I, I i cannot believe we're doing this and I guarantee you, there was not an eardrum or a pane of glass left on that freaking airplane. <laughs> we just totally dusted those assholes. That's out. so fucking so. cool, man. <laughs> that is. That is so cool. It, it's so it, awesome. And what was so funny, man. So, I mean, I, I, I almost peed in my pants. I'm just laughing so hard. <laughs> I just can't. Just the, the audacity of And not a single... Not a single freaking word from Bebop, right? So we land back in Dharan. We shut down, you know. And you always had to do a debrief with the Intel guys mm -hmm. when you got back, mm -hmm. right? And John Peliquin, our, our Intel guy, he's got this big shitty grin on his face. <laughs> and uh, he's just standing there, you know, with his arms folded. And he goes, hey, boys, you know, how'd, how'd Gunner flight go today? I'm like, yeah, Gunner was good. He's still got that stupid smile. So he goes, anything uh, I need to know about? Nope, not a thing. So I don't, I don't know if you know if he got a clue bird from AWACS uh -huh. or whatever. So, I mean, I'm sure AWACS saw the saw the whole. I'm sure they saw the whole freaking thing, right? But, <laughs> oh <laughs> man! A lot of our listeners and followers will be really excited that uh, we have Steve, also known as Combat Learjet. <laughs> Welcome, Steve. <laughs> hey, thanks, Aaron. I appreciate it, man. <laughs> so thanks for having me on oh yeah we're, we're we're really honored thank you very much um so uh pilot uh retired air force pilot um social media extraordinaire <laughs> i yes. guess I, yeah. I, I, we uh, could uh, say <laughs> well he's only got 744 followers oh wait there's a k <laughs> behind that um, <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, I was just bragging to uh, my brothers how uh, our Rapchat Global Instagram, you know, we're just what over six thousand. Yeah, it's almost seven. Almost seven, and so. then I was looking at uh, Combat Learjet's page, and I'm like, yeah, we got a little ways to go, but hey, you got to start somewhere, <laughs> right? Absolutely. You know, and I, I will say when I first started, the algorithm was a little different. I think it was easier to grow a page uh -huh. faster than it is now. Um, so I maybe was just lucky on timing a few years ago more than anything. I just want to add that modesty is kind of frowned upon, frowned upon here in the Ramp Check podcast. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah. No, it was all me then. I guess I did it all. It's my fantastic. <laughs> See, post. we knew. We knew that. <laughs> there you go. There you go. What got you yeah. thinking uh, starting Combat Learjet? And how did that all uh, come together in the beginning? 
Yeah, so I, and I've told several people this, I didn't make that name up. There was somebody much smarter than I am that came up with that name and and a patch mm-hmm. that we wore when we were deployed. Um, so, and if you've seen the patch, it just has a Learjet and it's got a target on it, which is obviously it's a tongue-in-cheek patch. So we had yeah. a target on us and it said unaware, unafraid, and we flew into some nasty places in Afghanistan and Iraq and other uh-huh. places and so we we have we have no defensive system. So that was the tongue in cheek with it. So I I saw the patch. I wore the patch when I was deployed. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I loved it. I thought I thought it was great. And then when I got back, and I think I started a Twitter account first for a while. And okay, I thought well, I need to come up with a handle. So I came up with a combat Learjet. And then I I didn't stay on Twitter for long. I I don't know. It just yeah it wasn't necessarily for me. And and then when I decided to start an Instagram page. Um, I just kind of kicked around what some names I could use. And so I went back to the combat Learjet and, uh, that's kind of the history of it. And then when I first started running my page, I only posted my own pictures and videos. So uh-huh. I was really proud of that at first. And then <laughs> I realized that that was, that was getting boring with just the same pictures and stuff over and over. So, yeah. but that's, that's kind of the history of where the name came from. And, uh, I'm kind of curious to know, um, why it's combat Learjet? What's the history behind that? Yeah, and again, that was uh, so. Uh, there, there's actually another patch that's floating around there. It's called the uh, the Fire Bass, which is so the the way the story goes is when you deploy, you would have a meeting every you know in the afternoon. The you know the wing commander would sit down with all the you know, the squadron commanders and or, you know, people from each squadron. And a lot of times, you you know, everybody has to be represented at these meetings. So the C-21 guys would go to this meeting and if typically a deployed, you know, uh, ops group commander, wing commander, he's probably a fighter guy. So he's going around the table and he wanted to know what is the call, what do you call a C-21? What's his call sign? You know, like a Viper, you know, the F-16 mm-hmm. and we, we didn't have one. There was no call sign. So, again, some very creative uh, lieutenants came up with the fire bass. So it's just the most ridiculous thing. It's fire? just a, it's a bass with <laughs> fire bass. You'll, you'll have to Google it. So okay. It's okay. just a bass with like, with like flames. I've got a picture of the patch. I might post it. But it's – so they made up the nickname fire bass. And then that stuck for a while. And then somebody – took it the next step and said, well, let's just call it the combat Learjet. And which obviously we have nothing to do. We have nothing to do with combat. You know, we just fly around in those places, but that, and I, as you probably have noticed, I've kept that mystique, you know, and made it seem like it was much more than it really was. I mean, we're just, (laughs) we're a Lear 35 with nothing, but uh, I, I kind of, I kind of played into the combat Learjet thing. So hopefully we didn't just blow your cover. Yeah, I, I, that's good. It's all good. You know? But uh, on the on the page, I, I still kind of keep it as I can't talk about what we do. You know, just the whole yeah. time and it drives people nuts, yes. which is funny. So. That is funny. You know, I, I I wasn't one of those guys that wanted. I mean, I always thought being a pilot was cool, and I had some mentors around me that were pilots. Um, probably uh, the closest was my cousin, who was about five years ahead of me, and he. I saw pictures of him. I was still, I guess, maybe just entering high school and he had graduated pilot training and 
he had a uh, I, he had a, at the time I thought a cool car it was a Fiero. Uh, <laughs> Fiero, oh, wow, you know, Fiero. Yeah, I was like, Fiero. Oh, it's Fiero. He had a picture of him. I still remember it. He's in front of his Fiero in his flight suit, and he flew. Uh, he got B one bombers, and I thought, man, that oh. dude is just the coolest guy in the world. Oh, wow. And uh, so it was probably high schoolish before I really started kind of thinking about it, and mm-hmm. then. Uh, I went to college. I went to college down in Albuquerque at UNM, and I got down there and joined ROTC. And I know this sounds terrible, but I just hated it. It was just really? all my other buddies were out, were out partying, having a good time. And our our commandant, uh, he was a, a, a full bird colonel. He thought it was a great idea that all the cadets would clean the uh, the stadiums after all the football games and basketball games. Of course, oh. we didn't keep any of that money. That money was just for the detachment. Oh, yeah. And so every, it was just the worst job ever. Uh, you know, you go, the Lobos are notoriously terrible in football, so people only <laughs> went there to party. So you would go clean the stadium up after this huge, you know, 30,000 fan party. And it was just disgusting. And Ugh. So I was doing that while all my other buddies were out having fun. And so I, I did that for about a year and I was like, I, I hate this. This is terrible. So I actually got out of ROTC for a while and mm-hmm. thought I'd go do something else. And and then somewhere along the way, I grew up a little bit and went, wow, so I, I could fly airplanes and figure that out. And so I, a buddy of mine kind of talked me into going back and, and mm-hmm. I did. And that's the rest is kind of history. I ended up getting a pilot slot and on my way and, and loved it. But there were, I can't say that I was, I was that driven kid from the very beginning saying I've got to be in the yeah. military. I got to be, you know, all this. Cause I, I wasn't, I kind of wandered around a little bit until I figured out that it was something that I liked. So. Yeah. Did you, did you have a new commandant before you went back? You know, uh, I, I didn't, I ended up just kind of going back and saying, look, I, I realized my buddy's like, look, we just got to get through this. We've got a couple years and, yeah. and I think my senior year he left and, but we had a great time when I went back and had the right attitude and realized that this is just silly game and it's just a process to get through, to get to the next step. Then it was much better than, yeah. you know, when I first started going, cause I, I thought, wow, is this what the military is? I, you don't know. <laughs> yeah. I've never been around and. <laughs> you know, I was, you know, you had, you had to wear your uniform around on, you know, the campus and, mm-hmm. you know, all my, of course, my buddies weren't doing it. So the guys I was living with and hanging out, they were all, you know, giving me a hard time about it. So it wasn't, it wasn't something I really enjoyed early on until I, you know, got mm-hmm. down the road a little ways. And it was a, it was an adjustment when I got out of the military, you know, a mm-hmm. few years ago when I retired, I didn't realize how much of an adjustment it would be to go to a job that wasn't military oriented and it was it was quite the quite the adjustment there too so uh i've adjusted well and i don't want to go ever go back to the military but uh, at the at the time i was like man this is who am i i wasn't really sure after that many years of being in the military oh yeah um did you choose to fly the c-21 or were you basically given orders to fly the c-21 no i so my active duty years i flew i i graduated from pilot training the time i graduated over half the class were not even getting an airplane it was a time where they were banking pilots if Mm. you guys ever remember that and they just had too many pilots so as the pilots graduated only the top 50 percent of the of your graduating class actually got an airplane the other Mm. the bottom 50 percent had to go to a desk job for like three plus years 
Wow. So there were very, there were very few airplanes available when I graduated. Um, there were no fighters per se. It was only, it was what they called a, a fighter or like an F-16 to be determined. So hmm. you did, if you chose or got that, you would go fly an F-16, but you had no idea where you were going to go or what you're going to do. Hmm. And most guys ended up with uh, doing a, um, doing a year remote in Korea on their first assignment with that. But uh, so I was happy to get an airplane. I got a KC-135 out of pilot training. And uh, so that's what I flew my Air Force career. So I was in for 10 years in the Air Force. And as I got close to getting out of the Air Force, uh, I was actually uh, an instructor down at Altus uh, flying the 135. And I had a student who had flown uh, C-21s and we were doing an AR air refueling track up over Colorado Springs one time. And he said, Hey, there's a great little guard unit down there that flies C-21s. They only have a couple airplanes and he happened to have the ops officer's phone number. So I knew I was getting ready to get out of the air force. And I I thought at the time I was going to go to the airlines and I was going to look for, you know, some kind of guard job. And, and so I called this ops officer and I ended up, uh, uh, talking to him a couple times and then ultimately I applied for a job and and I was thankful enough that they uh, they hired me and it was you know it was a hard unit to get in there was only I think they hired four or five guys but there was like over a hundred applicants to get into this little c21 unit and so that that's how I got into it and then I I stayed in that unit for 17 years flying the c21 Oh, wow. So, so you originally so, combat yeah. strato tanker is what you're saying. You're so mysterious. I, I, yeah, right? We I didn't was, even know that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I flew the, I flew the KC-135. Yeah. For 10 years. And, wow. uh, you know, I hint at that every once in a while. I'll put out that, uh, <laughs> nobody, nobody kicks ass without taker gas. If you see that NK, oh, yeah. whatever, that's, that's what that right. is. But, but, uh, anyway, that's, that's what, I, that's what I, uh, was born and raised in the Air Force too, and and I love that job. Great job and great folks, and um, and then the transition to the C twenty one was was sure. great too. I enjoyed it. You know, I got in right after the first Gulf War, so okay. right after I got to my uh, first assignment, that had already kicked off. But then we had a no fly zone mm-hmm. uh, for Iraq, and I I flew lots of missions there. I flew. Uh, I flew Bosnia stuff. I flew uh, Somalia stuff. Hmm. So I don't know. There, there was a handful, and then you know, of course, back to Iraq again and everything, yeah. and then Afghanistan stuff. So yeah, yeah. Um, was... um, I'm I'm curious. What what exactly um, were? How do I put this? What were your missions? What exactly would a C-21 pilot do? You know, during those campaigns. Um, you know. F- what were your yeah, missions? Sure. Basically. Example of missions and you yeah, know. yeah. So we had our stateside mission was a little different than when we deploy. I, I say it's different. Um, primarily on both of them, we were moving passengers around. Stateside, it was more DVs, i.e., general officers, uh, for mm-hmm. the most part. Uh, when you deploy, there's not so many general officers in the AOR over there, but you are carrying around colonels sometimes we carried around you know small teams of i'm sure important people doing whatever they do um we would move folks (laughs) like that occasionally and then uh 
a lot another one of our main missions over there was we we carried the U2's film. So the U2 has the ability of both filming and you know they got a data link for digital, but they also have big reels of film that they still uh, at least back when I was doing it, they did. Yeah. And once they'd fly a mission, they'd have these huge rolls, and they weighed a couple hundred pounds uh, each. And we would we would go and pick those up at the location they were, take them to another location where they would be uh, flown back to the states and analyzed. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. So That's that was important. Yeah, and my, what I what I understand without too much info on it, they were basically just looking for they were filming areas and looking for differences from what it was to what it is kind of now. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. but, uh, so that okay. there were people wherever in DC that did that. So that was a mission. And then, uh, probably one of our main missions here stateside that we ended up picking up in our guard unit is after nine 11, we ended up going out and testing the air defenses. So all the, all the videos and pictures I post with fighters off my wing, mm-hmm. that's what that was from. We would, we would go out and purposely, uh, get these alert fighters to launch on us. And we were testing out both their response and the process. And, and we worked with the IG team who evaluated them. And uh, we did that both here and up into Canada. And that was a pretty prominent mission for us uh, for several years after 9-11. Would you mind just kind of giving us a little rundown of, of, of that, of your 9-11 story? It was so fascinating. Sure, sure. Yeah, I. So the the morning of, you know, like anybody, I was headed to work. I was going into Peterson, and I think that day I wasn't listening to the radio. I was listening to, you know, a podcast or whatever back then. It was maybe a audio book or something. So mm-hmm. I I really wasn't tuned in to what was going on in the world. And I parked at my squadron and I walked in only to see, you know, the TVs going and. And everybody was, uh, you know, obviously glued to the TV and we were, you know, everybody was talking like, Hey, one of the, an airplane hit a building and they still weren't really sure at that moment. And as we're watching the TV, I watched the second one come in and hit, you know, and like everybody, mm-hmm. we, we all knew immediately, okay, we're, we're under attack. And so as we're standing around there, our squadron commander immediately uh, said, uh, I want everybody, he was, you know, smart enough to realize we're probably about to be used. And yeah. so he sent, uh, he sent most of us home and put us back into crew rest. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that's what I did. I went back into crew rest and I think I got a call later that night saying, Hey, we've our, we've got a mission drop down for you early in the morning. So I came in, which would have been September 12th at probably three in the morning. Um, just a side note, I got a speeding ticket on the way in, so it still <laughs> irks me to this day. Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, wow. yeah he's I, like I, asking I, me, like, what are you, where, where are you going? I'm like, hey, man, I'm going to fly a mission. Uh, and he goes, well, you're already flying and wrote me the ticket. I'm like, oh, oh what a jerk. My so, oh, so, my gosh. So that was, and I, I love law enforcement, but that guy, that guy, he, he so it's still something I, I laugh about. Anyway, <laughs> wow. uh, I got in and our mission on the, early the 12th was they had brought in some uh, engineers from, I think they came out of California originally, got them to us. And then we loaded them up and we flew to um, into Newark Mm -hmm. and uh, the whole, uh, you know, it was, it was surreal at this point, everything had been shut down. The airspace was shut down. We literally took off 
and they cleared us direct to Newark from wow. Colorado Springs, Gosh. which, you know, that, that's unheard of. Yeah. And of course we talked, we talked to, uh, we talked to ATC across the country and, you know, Kansas city center is a huge center and they're like, you're the only airplane we're controlling. So it was just a very wow. unique time to fly. We did, we were intercepted by an F-16 along the way that just wanted to visually identify us. Never saw him, but mm-hmm. they, they said, Hey, you're going to have company uh, identifying you. And then as we're, I still remember as we start our descent down into New York city, uh, there was a level of debris at about, I would say high teens, low twenties, you could just see this like brown leather from, you know, the, the buildings and everything Mm -hmm. that had come up after that. And, Mm -hmm. and that's where it really became real to me is like, Oh my gosh, you know, we didn't, you could still see where it was smoking near the, you know, as you're coming in on approach and, and uh, we, we brought the engineers in and I guess their, their mission was to evaluate the buildings around the twin towers to see, whether or not they were going to, you know, be able to stand or not, as we know, you know, some of those ended up coming down anyway, mm-hmm. but, uh, that was, that was our original mission. And then following that, we did, uh, we did several, several days worth of those type of missions back and forth there and mm-hmm. a few other places, um, as nobody else was flying, we were, we were still very busy flying lots of missions. So, mm. wow. wow. But, uh, yeah, it was yeah. a surreal time. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's still, as I talk about it now, I hadn't thought much about it. It was a, it was a crazy time to, to go back and, and, uh, really be a part of something like that. So, That's... and it feels, uh, and I'm flying now, it, it feels a little like that now. Um, yeah. it's not to the same level, mm-hmm. but it, as I'm, as I'm doing my job now, there's, you know, there's nobody flying there. We're still getting, we're getting clearances, direct places. There's very few airplanes in the air. Um, it's, it is, a it's, it, it feels a lot like nine 11 to me again. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. It, and when you lose if in a time like this, if we lose major airlines, uh, you know, it's hard to get that back. It, it's just, mm-hmm. it took so long to build these airlines and get them to where they are. If, if they have to close the door, you know, it hurts, it hurts the industry as a whole because now all those pilots hit the street and all these younger pilots are out looking for jobs and trying to find their way. You know, now the market's flooded and it's just a, mm-hmm. it's just a really rough road. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I think I hear people tell me on my page, Oh, the airlines make billions. Well, they do make a lot of money in the good times, but it's amazing how much money they bleed in a time like this. I, mm-hmm. I read something about one of the major airlines saying that they were going to lose close to $11 billion in revenue between now and July wow. if it maintained the same way. Yeah. And I don't care how much money you have in the bank. When you bleed that kind of money, it, it will take the healthiest of airlines Mm-hmm. and and shipwreck them in no time at all mm-hmm. so right. uh, i i think that's why there's a lot of concern right now um and i'm not convinced that people are even if we say hey uh all's clear we can go back to living i'm not com- convinced that people are going to feel really comfortable hopping on airplanes right away so uh i'm i plan on helping to encourage that as much as i can when we get to that point but yeah. uh you know we'll, we'll see what happens I think the Max is a great airplane. Uh, I know, I know the reputation. I know all the stuff. I did a lot of, a lot of studying, and I, I had mentioned on some of my other stuff. My, 
my job in the one of my jobs in the Air Force was I was a safety accident investigation guy. So I'm kind of a geek towards oh, that type stuff. That's always and, fascinated uh, me. And so, yeah, so I, uh, you know, I kind of dug into these accidents in the Max and went back and looked at them and read some stuff on it. And there's a lot more. There's a lot more to it than just, um, you know, Boeing created a terrible airplane because that's really just a small part of the story. And, Mm -hmm. and I would, I would even argue it wasn't a terrible airplane. It was just a system that, um, that they obviously didn't tell us about and that was not designed like it should be. And that, that has been fixed, but there were, there Mm -hmm. were also a lot of um, (laughs) mistakes made on the other end too, which we could spend a whole podcast talking about that. Well, it's it's funny that you would bring up the max because we, we wanted to ask that question to you since you do fly, you know, the 737s. We kind of want to get it your wanted to get your take because everybody that we've talked to hasn't flown the 737. And so now we have somebody on the podcast who has. And, you know, from from the in-depth reading that the three of us have done and from the opinions of people that we have spoken to, there's really one word, one glaring word that stands out in our opinion and some of these other opinions. And a lot of that is airmanship. Yeah. 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 There was, uh, again, without getting all the details in, but there was some mistakes on, on the last accident, the auto throttles were never kicked off and thus the airplane thought it was stalling Mm -hmm. due to the AOA uh, indication given at a stall indication on the airspeed indicators. Mm-hmm. But because of that, the auto throttles are, they've got the power all the way up at the firewall, full throttles. Wow. And the, the airplane is going at that point, you know, I don't, I don't even know, 500 and some miles an hour across the ground, just smoking fast Yeah. with the, with the power full up. And anybody that's ever flown knows the faster you go, the more out of trim you get, the worse it gets. So, uh, it's, uh, it, the, the MCAS trim system was exaggerated by the fact that they were, had the power full up. And when that thing fired, it was there, there was just no getting out of it. So, um, so, so yeah, I would, I would guess I would, I would definitely say you guys are on target with airmanship as at least a, anytime you do an accident investigation, there's lots of factors that go into it. Mm -hmm. Sure. It, it's yeah. a rare event for one thing to crash an airplane. Mm-hmm. So um, that what we call them causal factors. And so obviously the MCAS system was a causal factor, but there was also um, things that the pilots did that were causal factors to that airplane. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Had, yeah, had, yeah. had the trim system been kicked off, they would have survived, you know, and yeah. or had the opportunity to. So. Mm-hmm. Buck Wyndham was one of the very first pilots to take the mighty A-10 Warthog attack jet into battle, flying numerous missions during Operation Desert Storm. He went on to fly the T-38 Talon as an instructor, training new Air Force pilots. He is currently a captain for a major U.S. airline and also continues to fly privately owned surplus military jets as a test pilot and instructor. Buck has written several articles for magazines including Warbirds, Classic Jet Journal, and Warbird Digest. A skilled photographer and videographer, he also enjoys vintage aircraft, studying history, 3D printing, collecting tools, driving his rail speeder, 
and exploring ghost towns. He is working on his next book, a novel entitled Red Air. Is your call sign Buck, or is that your first name? So it it became both, but uh, Buck is my okay. given. It's not my given name, but um, my parents actually named me Buck when I was a little kid because we have a lot of uh, people in my family with the same name. I'm the fourth. Oh, and uh, oh, wow. we all have nicknames. So I became Buck and that sort of carried Great. over into my military career. So yeah, I was a total av geek. Uh, even as a kid, I think four years old is when I announced to my parents that I was going to be a pilot and they looked at me like, well, where'd that come from? So, um, <laughs> growing up, you know, I hung out at the local airports and I tried to fly and get rides and stuff with people as much as I could. Uh, got my private glider rating when I was 16 I uh, went to Embry-Riddle in, down in Daytona and oh, uh, nice. got the rest of my ratings down there and then went in the Air Force. I was in ROTC in college, so I went in. Uh, back to when I was 12 years old, I saw an A-10 for the first time. I was on the beach in South Carolina, and there was a couple of them mm. flying up the beach, and I looked at them and said, I have no idea what that crazy freaking thing <laughs> is, but I want to fly it. I didn't even know what it was until that fall when I checked out a copy of a uh, aviation week magazine and found out what it was and then oh, from wow. that on i was just an, an a10 nerd and i just uh it's all i ever wanted to fly and uh so when i finally got to pilot training you know they, they have you fill out a form that says what do you want to fly um and i wrote a10 and of course everybody else had f16 f15 you know all that yeah. stuff so uh they kind of looked at me crazy but um <laughs> yeah i i was really fortunate to get an a10 out of pilot training and i got assigned to raf alkenbury which is a british base about 70 miles north of london and i was just living the dream over there as a as a lieutenant in england um flying flying the a10 you know when i'm when i was in england we were flying down low in the weeds uh basically defending uh, uh defending yeah. england and and West Germany from the hordes of Russian tanks that were going to come over the border in World War Three. That was our purpose: was to fly down low and and shoot at tanks and armored vehicles. Um, and then the Gulf War came along, and we suddenly there's nothing to hide behind in the desert, so we had to learn how to be right. Stuka dive bombers. And uh, so oh, it was a, wow. quite a different uh, different thing. But yeah, I've flown general aviation on the side all my life. Had planes, um, participated in all kinds of other. GA things, so I'm just a flying geek. Since uh, since obviously the A10 was not glass cockpit, and and the uh, A10 pilots have it a lot easier these days, quote unquote. Um, <laughs> would you consider yourself a better pilot than the uh, current pilot? <laughs> oh yeah, I'm going to go right out and say that. Sure. No, <laughs> I think actually those guys, those guys today, the guys today flying it have uh have a lot more to deal with and uh, a lot more technology oh, yeah. to deal with but actually i have a lot of respect for for what they're doing and and it's the job is the same you know they're oh yeah 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 but no i'm just I, i'm still... just trying to i'm just trying to provoke a little bit that's all that's just <laughs> my nature um but yeah i want to continue actually kind of on this topic a little bit but go ahead and finish your thought buck sorry <clears throat> oh no, no i'm just gonna say these kids today have it so easy <laughs> They do, we, right? Oh my gosh! Go ahead, Buck. No, <laughs> I'm not going any further down that path. <laughs> so this may be the the kid in me speaking, but I I've got to know 
is there any sort of feeling behind firing that cannon and just lighting up a, a tank or <laughs> like what does that feel like? I yeah, mean, I've seen some ground footage of troops when when that A tank comes in and those troops cheer so loud yeah. and that noise is just I don't know. I just oh, yeah. kind of got to know what yeah. that's like to be yeah. in the cockpit. Yeah. <laughs> It, it is it is awesome. I can tell you that the first time I ever did it was in Tucson, Arizona, when I was going through training, of course, and I uh, went oh, out there and we set up on a on a target. And there's my instructor was in another airplane, of course, about a half mile behind me. He chased me in there, and I rolled in on this this big rag. We used it, it was about a fifteen by fifteen foot rag suspended between two telephone poles, and you shoot at it, and there's a microphone underneath it that picks up the sounds of the bullets going by, and it actually counts them, and it knows whether you whether you hit or wow. not. And uh, the range controller wow. will actually read out to you how many hits you got. So I rolled in and uh, didn't know what to expect uh, other than, you know, what I'd seen on videos and things. And I uh, squeezed the trigger halfway. There's a little detent there. And then mm-hmm. I increased my finger pressure, and I just just waiting and waiting for the <laughs> – <laughs> for whatever i didn't know what i was what was coming and i just remember that all hell broke loose shortly after that and it it was the the plane roared it made a roaring sound that came up through my helmet through the sides of my helmet and into my my head it wasn't like coming through you know the ear cups or anything it was just my whole body was rumbling and the whole plane was roaring and um you uh you you lose sight of the target for a brief moment as the as the bullets are are hitting it and um the, uh, <laughs> yeah i'm still i'm trying to come up with a superlative <laughs> to tell you what it's yeah, like cause yeah. it's absolutely <laughs> awesome the the g meter which is sitting up there on the glare shield above you uh pegs out at plus 10 and minus 8 g's when you shoot the gun mm. that's how much vibration there is oh wow oh the whole my plane god is, is vibrating Jeez. that that hard and then you release the trigger and you pull off the target. And a few seconds later, you start to smell the, the cordite, the gun gas coming up oh, through the floorboards and into your mask. And it's just the greatest smell ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dang, that sounds, oh, that sounds just as cool as I hoped it sounded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we've all, we've all seen videos and heard audio of the burnt, you know, oh, the yeah. A10 fires, which is one of the coolest sounds ever. Are yeah. there any recordings in existence of that sound from the inside of the cockpit? Do you um, know? Yeah, I <laughs> I won't say that I did this, but there were some people <laughs> during the <laughs> sure. during Desert Storm that, that actually Sorry, put, we didn't mean to get you in trouble here. Oh, no, no. I, I think, uh, <laughs> I think the uh, statute of limitations is, is long over on this, but again... <laughs> I have that, heard that there are people that put video cameras in the cockpit uh, during the war uh, for uh, one or two sorties, and uh, that would definitely have recorded the sound. I don't know that it really does it justice, but uh, yeah, oh yeah, you know, it sounds about the same inside as it does out, except it's uh, you know it's two feet under your feet, it's, or you know, Dang. three feet under that's your found, feet. That sounds so cool. So I got to know, did you hit the target your first time? Yeah, I did. I don't know how many. Don't remember. It didn't really matter. I was just so elated. But um, <laughs> right, the, yeah. uh, uh, you get better at it with time, and um, it's definitely a a skill that is not like anything else uh, in guns. I flew. I, I shot a lot of guns growing up, and I I'm sort of a gun guy, and so this mm-hmm. was 
the ultimate, but it's it's not like anything else. It's just really not. You're flying an airplane at the same time you're shooting a gun, which wrapping your head around that sometimes is is different. But uh, when you watch videos on YouTube and you see the gun and you hear the burnt noise and you and uh, you hear the bullets hitting, you know that really. Other than the the sound of the gun going off uh, and this a little bit of sound from uh, other weapons that might be coming off the airplane, like Mavericks, it's really just it's quiet. It's quiet in the cockpit, yeah. kind of a whooshing noise and, and whatever's on the radio that you're listening to, uh, you know, or talking to people. That's it. Um, you, you never hear explosions. You never you don't even see the details of what's going on down there. A lot of the times you're shooting from several miles away. And mm-hmm. uh, so it's, it's a very de- detached sort of experience. And uh, because of that, you have to kind of remind yourself how real it is for the people on the other end. And uh, I try not to think too much about my, you know, my kill count. That's not something that, that pilots do. We, we generally didn't count up how many tanks we hit, how many, you know, of anything that we hit. It, it really mm-hmm. was just a kind of a flow and you, you shoot your assigned targets. Maybe you find other targets and then you go home. Bunch of A-10 squadrons deployed down there uh, as the fall of 1990 went on, Operation Desert Shield. We were the second to last, I believe, squadron to arrive. There were seven squadrons of A-10s that arrived all at one base in eastern Saudi Arabia. The place was called King Fahd International Airport. It was actually an under-construction international airport that we took over and used as a military base. Um, So... My squadron arrived on Christmas Day of 1990, and uh, the war started um, on the 17th of January. So we only had a, two and a half weeks to get ready, maybe three weeks to get ready. Um, they threw us in, a, in an old warehouse full of tractor parts because uh, that's all they had <laughs> available for us to use as a squadron. We put it together. We built a bunch of desks and called it a squadron. And um, I got... I believe two flights in theater during uh, early January, just to sort of look around at the lay of the land, maybe mm-hmm. take a quick peek across the Iraqi border, see what it looked like over there, which was same as it looked south of the border, just flat sand. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Really not a very inspiring landscape over there. Uh, kind of scary too. Cause there's, like I said, there's nothing to hide behind. Um, and, uh, the rest of the time we spent studying and briefing and, uh, just getting ready, talking about tactics and figuring out how, uh, what the conduct of the war was going to be and our rules of engagement and, uh, how the communications plan was going to go and all that stuff. And then on the 17th of, uh, January, the war kicked off at, in the early morning hours, uh, A-10s launched, um, were very, some of the very first, uh, planes to launch. Um, and I launched, uh, somewhere around 10 in the morning with my flight lead. I was a wingman at the time and we were assigned to a, a bunch of targets up in, in Kuwait. Uh, didn't go to Iraq mm. on my first wow. flight yeah. in Kuwait, which is where the Iraqi <clears throat> army was, was embedded and, and had taken over. So I went up there and, uh, we worked with a forward air controller flying an OV-10, believe it or oh, not. Wow. Oh, that's Marine. cool. Bronco, yeah, Marine wow. flying an OV-10, yeah. And uh, he was down pretty low, down around 6,000 feet or so. And so we thought, shoot, we'll, uh, since he's been down there for a while, we'll uh, we'll go down there too. So we went down about 6,000 feet and, and uh, worked with him to pick out some targets. We found some 
anti-aircraft artillery guns and a radar van that were sitting there. And we rolled in on those and pickled all of our bombs right across the the uh, gun emplacements, took them out, um, and then went and worked with a, a Navy SEAL who was on the beach and was uh, working on a an Iraqi uh, uh Basically, it was a bunch of guys that were spotting artillery and trying to launch artillery into Saudi Arabia across oh, the border. Wow. We took that place out with the gun and uh, and one Maverick. And then we got some AAA shot at us, anti-aircraft artillery, and uh, tried to get around that. Couldn't really get around it very easily and ran out of fuel, decided to come home. We were out of, out of fuel and time to go home, so we did. So it was about two... A 2.1 hour flight and um, got a little bit shot at us, but not too bad. And that was my first yeah. flight, and just went on from there. It was um, we we didn't lose anybody on day one. Uh, we had one bullet hole uh, in one mm -hmm. of our jets, but uh, that was it. So we had a pretty good first day. The next ten days were pretty bad weather, and the war sort of ground to a halt. Mm. I think I got two two flights in there. And then it really picked up. And then we really started to get into flying a lot, flying three flights a day, three missions a day, and uh, just dropping all kinds of bombs and missiles and shooting a gun. And and uh, so the war the war progressed uh, pretty quickly after that. So that was my first uh, my first day, and and how we got down to the desert. So so it's kind of funny. the The A ten was designed really for uh, close air support, uh, working closely with friendlies. Well. In Desert Storm, the first um, you know forty days or so, there really weren't too many friendlies north of the border. We didn't have to worry about that. It was just the Iraqis, and so we were we were bombers, and um, and we were uh, we went in not only right along the border, but increasingly as time went on, we were sent deeper and deeper and deeper to hit uh, some of the more aggressive. Uh, troops, the Iraqi troops called the Republican Guards, who were actually really well trained as opposed to the untrained conscripts that were just south of the border. And we would, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we were, we dropped a lot of bombs. We shot a lot of missiles at their, at their armored vehicles and their tanks and things. Um, so yeah, we were kind of, uh, battlefield air interdiction bombers for, for, uh, 40 days or so. We, uh, we went scud hunting out there. We, we, you know, the, the Scud missile was used by Iraq, and uh, every night we got Scuds launched at us. Oh, um, yeah. Big problem was they got launched at Israel, and Israel was really pissed, as you would imagine. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they were threatening to get into the war, and we did not want Israel in that war. We had to we had to maintain our, our, our support from all the allied nations that were there, including a lot of Arab nations. And uh, if Israel came into it, that would have dissolved our partnership. So um, oh, sure. President yeah. Bush said, uh, take out the scuds. So we went out and tried to take out as many scuds as we could. That was another thing we did. So the Iraqis had dug a bunch of uh, long trenches along the border, and they filled them with oil. And um, they, the intent was that if, if we came across the border, if, if the American army came across the border, they were going to light the pits on fire to try to block us from coming across, you know, interesting thought. I don't really know how you, how you 
set that on fire. Maybe you throw a flare in it or something. <laughs> yeah, but I guess yeah. somebody got a brilliant idea to maybe send some A-10s up there to try to preemptively light the pits on fire by shooting the gun into it. <laughs> you know, oh, wow. Armor piercing, high explosive incendiary bullets. Sounds like a good yeah. plan, but apparently yeah. some guys went up there. I was not involved in this, but apparently a couple guys went up there and just strafed the crap out of these pits and didn't, didn't, didn't not one flame came out of there. They didn't light it on fire <laughs> at all. So that was a waste. Um, <laughs> we, we did, I did personally get involved in, in a thing out west, far out in, in western Iraq in the Anbar province. Uh, when I was out there scud hunting, we found, uh, and, and I was not the first person to find this place. I just participated. Uh, we found these, uh, assemblies of buildings. I'm talking, uh, a, a fenced in compound that was four miles long by one mile wide that was full of tin buildings. We didn't know what was in them. Somebody lobbed a Maverick missile into one just to see what would happen. And what <laughs> happened was a freaking huge explosion. It went on for hours and uh, oh. was sending all kinds of shrapnel into the air. And then they did it again with another building and the same thing happened. And so every mission, we would try to stop by these places and lob a few <laughs> Mavericks in there and blow these places up because it was so much fun. It was, it was ammo. It was clearly stacked ammo and, and rockets and whatever else they had wow. sitting around. And uh, then they found another place that was like that. It was even bigger. Um, so the first one we named Home Depot because it had everything. And, uh, so, and uh, the other one was named after the guy that found it. We called it Hicksville. Uh, his name was Hicks. And uh, so anyway, we would stop by these places and blow the stuff up. And to this day, you can still see on Google Earth, you can still see the scorched areas of the of the ground where these buildings were out there. Oh, wow. uh, It's just amazing. I don't know what they had in them. But they were so satisfying, and I think we just totally decimated Iraq's uh, ammo stash. So, <laughs> That's so <Yeah>. awesome. <laughs> you know. Well, we're grateful. <laughs> yeah, really. That's awesome. Just make a, make a stop at Home Depot on the way home. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're super excited to talk to you, Cammie. And before we, before we begin... Do I need to dedicate this episode to uh, Buff Images? Because you know he's just going to go ape shit over this. Buff Images. I know. You know what? I actually listened to the one he did as well. So um, I'm glad Great. I can also participate. But yeah, that, <laughs> he's a good guy. We all like him. Let's uh, let's kind of rewind back. And were you always into aviation? Were you a quote-unquote av geek, Cammy? Were you, did you always want to fly? Tell us how that all uh, began for you. Sure. Um, you know what? This, this question is funny for me, mostly because I feel awkward answering this a lot of the times. <laughs> and I, I think it's because... We like awkward here. Yeah, it's awkward. And, and the reason why it's awkward is because I... No. You're, the answer is no. I didn't really grow up wanting to do this. Okay. Um, I honestly, I feel awkward saying it, but I, and because I, I know this is a lot of people's dream, but I literally just fell into this job, and and so I feel kind of like guilty, oh, you know, because oh, okay. it's just like <laughs> I kind of just it just happened, and I didn't really like aspire yeah. to be here. It just kind of fell into place, and um, so basically, I mean, yeah, you guys are based out of Salt Lake City. I saw, I, I grew up in Utah as well. Um, 
Cool. So yeah, I grew up there. I lived there most of my whole life. I moved there when I was five and lived in the same house ever since. And um, I mean, if we're going to the very, very beginning, so kind of what happened is I started playing volleyball at a really young age. Um, I just, there was volleyball in the family. My dad's sisters all played in college. So I knew I wanted to play. Um, we had a really oh, that's good, cool. yeah, we had a really good team and I knew I wanted to play in college. Um, and basically I kind of just said, well, I'd rather have a good, uh, education over mm-hmm. playing ball. Um, and then the Air Force mm-hmm. Academy kind of fell on my plate. So, um, I kind of just committed oh, nice. to the Air Force Academy. Yeah. And that's, that's really how it happened. Honestly, you know, half of the people who go there pretty much end up flying, um, some way or another. <laughs> and uh, yeah. so honestly, I owe it to volleyball, really. Um, how I'm here. Wow. So. That, that's the first time we've ever heard that correlation between volleyball and yeah, flying. I wouldn't I've never that's unique. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So was the, was the air force Academy volleyball team just really looking hard to recruit somebody? Is that kind of how it happened? Or, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, how I many mean, people, how many, how many people can say that the air force Academy kind of fell into their lap? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, sweet. <laughs> yeah, I think, for athletes, it kind of happens that way sometimes, you know, if you're recruited to play there. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, for me, growing up in Utah, you know, big BYU fan growing up and back in the day, they used to be in the same conference. So I knew there was a team called Air Force. I never really knew mm. what it was um, until high school, looking at colleges. And um, I don't know, there's a couple girls on my team in high school who started getting recruited by them and they un- ended up not doing it and my coach knew I had good grades and kind of just said why don't you contact them um and I know Mm -hmm. and she knew education was important to me as well and so I did I contacted them I sent them film I went on my official visit and that's kind of how it happened and I mean yeah I mean I wouldn't have been able to get into the Air Force Academy on my own accord you know the non-athletes there it's just you know it's ridiculous their their resumes oh yeah you know they're all valedictorians you know that I mean I had good grades I was I was nowhere near that level you know so Uh um so yeah with sports you know it helped me get into the school and Hmm. yeah that's kind of how it happened and pretty much yeah pretty much right when I committed to the school I knew I wanted to fly so I wouldn't say there was any convincing once I knew that it was a yeah. possibility and easily achievable I was like that's what I want to do so um, oh that's cool yeah yeah so <laughs> it wasn't really like I didn't want to be here or anything you know I just I think growing up I didn't really see a way to do it you know I, I guess it wasn't really yeah. on my radar of yeah. something that is easily achievable and then, you know, once I figured out I could go to that school and do that, it was like, yes, I have yeah. to do that. I ended up getting a FAPE slot. And I know you guys talked about this with Will and you guys had to figure out what yes, it did. Yes, we so, did. <laughs> so, <laughs> we did. Um, yeah, so there are, I don't know, one or two per class of people of, of your pilot training class that they get selected to stay at pilot training and instruct for about three and a half more years. So you never actually move on to your, your uh, weapons platform until after you've done that instructor tour. So that's what I did. And so Mm -hmm. the FAPE is stands for first assignment instructor pilot. 
Um, and, and, you know, we take pride in it. It's a big cl flying club for us. You know, it's mostly lieutenants yeah. and young captains and um, with the fate mafia is what we call it, right? So we have patches right. and yeah, cool. the... skull and right. crossbones yeah. are our thing. So, uh, you know, it, it can That's be fun. Awesome. Yeah, so it was a good time. Um, you know, a lot of fun stories come with that, too. You know, teaching brand new guys how to fly in a pretty high-performance aircraft, you know? Oh, jeez. So, um it's a, it was a good time i i didn't really have hard feelings when i when i got selected most people don't want to because they want to escape uh -huh. the pilot training base but um, <laughs> yeah. I, didn't, I didn't i didn't really have hard feelings i thought it was going to be a cool job and i was right you know i really liked that job it was it was fun you got to fly two or three times a day you know i spent more time in that thing than my oh, car yeah. Uh, you feel so comfortable in that aircraft and, you know, I ended up with like yeah. 1100 hours in it. So it was a good time. Wow. It was really fun. Yeah. And then, and then that, that comes in handy when you've got a young 22 year old trying to kill you in the same airplane, right? <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. It can be. Oh man. I honestly like looking oh, at come on. Like, Tell us a story. students. I, I mean, the whole, the whole, thing is a story in itself it's so dangerous yeah. honestly i can't believe that there aren't more accidents and i'm gonna get in trouble for saying that but it is they are scary and yeah. i know and i know i was scary when i started out too but oh man yeah yeah it's scary so, <laughs> so was was there tell us was there a time when you were so close to having to eject <laughs> to eject i mean like yeah um, or, or at least your at least your hands were like, like your hands yeah, were like covering over the handle. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh man! I mean, I never really had any like big emergencies or anything. Thank goodness, sure. some people did. But you know, there are times. I mean, we're teaching guys with I don't know thirty hours in the plane to fly ten feet away from another plane solo oh right? yeah so like when you're when you're yeah so when you're flying and you have a solo student on your wing who has 50 hours in the aircraft or less than that actually probably like 30 you're just like all right mm -hmm. there's nothing i can do if he hits me he's 10 feet away from me you know so like yeah. there's uh, there's always it's always pretty yeah. pretty hairy in some points but yeah <laughs> well i remember uh <laughs> I remember when I was doing some flight trainings, I felt bad for my instructor when I was in a Cessna 152. <laughs> so, so thinking about a T-38, that's just a little bit faster and a little bit more yeah. well, I was actually, yeah, I was actually a FAPE in the T-6, but yes, yeah, same concept. There are also mm. FAPEs in the T-38. There you go. So, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so you were, little... in the T... oh, you were a FAPE in the T-6, so were you... Where were you? Uh, where was your training base at? I was at Laughlin Air Force Base in Texas. It's in. It's like a. Okay. It's on the border of Mexico, pretty much okay. Del, Del Rio, yeah. Texas. Yeah. Sure. Yep. So, um, so there's there's four bases, and that's one of them. So. Okay. okay. So Ryan, go I, ahead. I got a question. Um, so what was it like going from something like that to? And I don't even know if there's an an accurate way to describe it, but going to something like that that's so like small and maneuverable and and then to something like the b-52 that is just so you know the the wingspan so enormous and because I, <laughs> I gotta say when i'm when i was looking at your instagram page and you compare like what a cockpit looks like 
of like some of these newer fighter jets and then all the dials and stuff and the instruments on the B-52. I'm like, was that a little <laughs> overwhelming or, or how was that? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. They, they do a good job of, of making the training, you know, you learn pieces of the cockpit and what each switch does individually and it gets ingrained in you. And so like, as far as like mm-hmm. the amount of switches and everything, no, that 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 <laughs> stuff is fine. Um, the maneuverability and stuff, I was a little bit of an issue, not an issue, but a little bit of a learning curve. Mostly when it comes yeah. came to air refueling, that was the biggest Ooh, part for wow. me. And I I thought that would transfer over just because I'm used to flying in formation a lot. Like okay. I did most of my time really close to another plane with like really fine movements you know so i thought that yeah, would transfer yeah. more but the problem is when you're in a t6 or a t38 <laughs> or any small plane you can feel your inputs immediately right so if i'm if i'm slightly to the left and i need to go right i can just move the stick slightly to the right and it'll be there right the problem with the mm-hmm. b52 is especially with spoilers <laughs> is it takes three seconds to even register yeah. that you made the input. takes till next Wednesday for it to make yes. that right turn. And so if you keep <laughs> that like movement, like still in, like if I'm trying to turn to the right and I keep my uh-huh. spoiler in for too long, trying to wait for the movement to happen, I've already put in way too much input. So you're, you're constantly mm. thinking in the future because you're like, okay, I'm going to put in right input and I'm going to take it out even before I see the movement happen, right? So mm, it's, wow. it's it's like you're thinking in the future. And so that to me was like the hardest part just because I'm so used to just instantaneous correction and I can be there and see it. And, you know, it's a pretty mm-hmm. like athletic type of flying formation is. Whereas like mm-hmm, the yeah. air, air refueling in the B-52 is just like, I felt like I was never going to get it at first. I was like, what in the <laughs> world? This is so difficult. But, you know, oh, by yeah, the end of well, training, they, they, we figured it out. It, it all worked out. But it's difficult. It was difficult. There's um, there's a pretty cool video on uh, on her Instagram, Aaron and Tony, if you haven't seen it, where I think you are actually doing an air-to-air refueling. And the amount of corrections that you're making with the yoke, I'm just like, Holy shit. <laughs> I'm just yeah. Like, yeah. It's pretty impressive. It's pretty impressive. So I thought yeah, that was you're pretty moving neat that to see. thing around a lot. Yeah. It is kind of cool. See, and you know, that's the same in the and, pattern too. Like even just like if wow. the pilot's not on and you're just trying to maintain an altitude, that's exactly what it looks like too. The B fifty two is just odd that way. It doesn't really <laughs> it doesn't really stay in one place. Yeah. You constantly have to keep it there. So and, and the B, the B fifty two it 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 doesn't have ailerons right it's just it, it's all about spoilers right spoilers yep spoilers mm-hmm. wow that's interesting and then the B fifty two was probably the first aircraft that you ever did air to air refueling as well because T six T thirty eight those aren't air to air right right either right. one no but I mean like you do a lot of formation flying and stuff which. Right. I could guess right. mimic air refueling, but as far as oh, def- actually definitely. receiving gas, correct. This but is actually making contact with another yeah. aircraft, it's not until you were in the B-52. Yes. Wow. 
So, uh, Cami, I was I was in the Utah. Well, I was active duty Air Force for a while, but was also in the Utah Air National Guard, and oh, nice. um, I I got to go up in a KC one thirty five on a B fifty two refueling mission, um, oh, and just to see that beast coming up from below. And one of the things that I noticed, and it actually freaked me out at first, is the engines, when that thing's coming up at you, it's like the engines are moving back and forth, like at this crazy rate, like they're going to snap off. That's one of the craziest things I've ever seen. Yeah. and it's So is that something that you feel? You can't can't feel it, but honestly, if you're like in a cloud and you're in turbulence and you, it it freaks me out to look out the side and just to see the movement of the wingtips and everything. I just, sometimes I can't, I can't look. So I'm like, the wings are going to fall off. They're going to snap off. They're going to snap off at any time. (laughs) Yep. So I know what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Um, Wow. It was pretty awesome to... (laughs) Yeah, there but, is. And 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 I can't remember. It must have been the B-52 as well, because the wings at certain points almost looked like they were flapping. Yeah. Um, I can't that, I can't remember yeah. if that was the C-5 or the B-52, but I'm pretty sure it was the B-52. So I mean, maybe both, but for sure the B-52, it does that for sure. So, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, and that was, you know, I'm I'm old and that was a long time ago, too. So that might have something to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well the the h model's been around since 62 so i think they've got pretty good wings on there even though they like to flap oh yeah, yeah i mean it's, they're flexible they're, for a reason pretty, we put they're like pretty dang yeah exactly hundreds of thousands of pounds of gas in those wings oh too, yeah. you know so like they yeah. have to be flexible yeah and i'm uh, just joking too i mean I know, of course yeah. there's reasons i'm just being dumb no but, i know, I know. <laughs> yeah. so, but so, it isn't it isn't very fun to look at while you're in the cockpit i'll tell you that much oh yeah <laughs> nerve-wracking jeez um <laughs> So I, I have another question, and and I wanted to Ryan kind of skipped ahead just a little bit to the B fifty two. I wanted to just go back, Damn it, Ryan, to to I know, geez, <laughs> uh, the T thirty eight and 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 the T six, and and just ask about. Um, so when you got your pilot slot, were you training in the T six first, or did you go directly to T thirty eight and then? From T thirty eight, you went to the T six to be the fate, or how did that go? Um, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Air Force pilot training is approximately a year long. You they, it keeps the syllabus keeps changing, but you have approximately mm-hmm. a month to two months of academics on the ground, and then they throw you in the T six. So every Air Force pilot starts in the T six, and they they fly the T six for about five months. And then based on performance and what the Air Force has available, you'll either go T1s or T38s for the rest of the six-month, five- to six-month period. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. And then, so, yeah, I went to the T38, flew that for about five months. And then come assignment night, I found out that I was going back to the T6 to instruct. Oh, okay. Sense. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And so... I guess for that's why when you mention that story, you're like, oh, some people, they just want to get out of there. And so I'm sure there's some people that are like, oh, man, I got to go back to the T6. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. geez, I mean, <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, that I mean, this, so... give, give and take, right? So, like, the T-38, yeah. yes, super fun to fly. It would be super yeah. fun to be an instructor. However, there are perks to the T-6. It still pulls the same amount of Gs as the T-38. Like, you're still raging. Uh-huh. Um, you can mm-hmm. fly anywhere and land anywhere because your takeoff and landing distance is way shorter. So you can... Oh, yeah, I can imagine. You, you, can, you can go anywhere. Like, anywhere. Whereas the T-38, they're you know, they're told is so limited on where they can, yeah. they can't, they can't go anywhere too high. They can only go to like Colorado if it's cold and wintry because they won't be able to, like, <laughs> right. drop, you know, so yeah, just there's perks to both. I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Normally well, I was gonna... if you're an instructor in one, you're partial to that one, you know, but just depends. So I can divulge <laughs> this. I'm, I'm going to disappoint you with the story. Not as cool as most stories. Um, so, uh, FAPES, so I don't know, it depends. So, like, when I was a FAPE, yes, you get a call sign. Ba- uh-huh. It depends on which community you go to after being a FAPE and if you get to keep your call sign. So, oh, okay. yeah. I still don't know for sure if I get to keep it. I've heard whisperings <laughs> that they will let me keep it. It's kind of a ceremony, like a ceremony type of thing <laughs> where you have to convince them that you earned it or whatever it may be Uh but um so my call sign as a fape uh was lit l-i-t and yes and uh basically so there was while i was instructing there was a bad weather day it was like foggy it was a winter morning and all of our flying goes were canceled and I kind of I was I was still pretty new to in, to being an instructor and I wanted to practice different things and so I decided to go get myself in the sim and since I couldn't fly for real just practice random instructor things and so mm-hmm. I get in the sim do my thing I pop out of the sim and I'm just by myself and I go I don't know if you guys have ever been I mean you guys have probably been in a sim of some sort but basically uh-huh. I don't know they're like domes and there's like a, a door on the dome. And so I tried to get out of the little dome thing and I was locked in to that <laughs> sim. Um, oh, no. I could not, I could not get out. I was, yeah. So I, and it, it was funny. So there was a phone in there. And so I, I called like the sim maintenance from the phone and I said, I can't get out. Uh, I'm locked in here. <laughs> And of course, the lady starts laughing and says, "Oh, we changed the lock <laughs> this morning. I guess they didn't test them out." I'm like, okay, guess, oh, guess not. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. And then I, if I remember correctly, I think I was late to a flight because it took them so long to get me out. Like, I had to. I remember calling back to where I worked and telling the student, "Like, I'm going to be late. I'm locked in the simulator." And um, oh wow, they. I, they they couldn't figure it out. Basically, they took the entire door off the frame to get me out of there. It took like an hour. But, <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. So it stands for locked in trainer. So. That's, <laughs> oh. That's oh, what they, it is. they've got to they've got to let you keep that. That's funny. Oh, I hope that's so. I was I mean, in a totally it. different direction yeah. of that, but that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. like. She's so like lit. Big. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> She's so lit. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. As an instructor, it's really, really rewarding to get, feel like the light bulb is going 
going on, you know, in, in someone. So in the T6, the instructor's always in the back and the student's always in the front. And there, there was one particular flight and I, I'm like not really an emotional person, I would say. Like, I don't really, mm-hmm. I've never like cried in a movie or like, like nothing. I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I'm like hard to bring out some of this emotion, but there was, there was this particular student who he was struggling and, and he, you know, and it's tough when you get those students because they want to do so well, but sometimes you just, if you mm-hmm. don't have it, you don't have it. And sometimes, you know, and sometimes people don't make it through. Yeah. And um, there, there was this particular student I was flying with and, he had failed his previous two flights and he kept, he kept unsatting for this particular thing. And so in in the, before we went to go fly, I, we had to sit down and I was explaining him to him, like how to do this thing better. And, um, mm-hmm. and I just remember on the flight, he did exactly what I told him to do and like executed it perfectly because I like mm. had I had you know like broken it down step by step and he did exactly step by step what I asked him to do and you could just feel his light bulb moment you know wow like you could just feel like he was so yep. relieved that he figured it out and he was just in the front and he he was just so happy over this one thing because oh, he cool. kept he kept like failing this flight for this one thing and and you can just tell he was like he got it and he did it perfectly like two or three times in a row and i like had to like turn my microphone off because i was like trying i was like starting to tear up in the back i was like oh my oh, god wow. <laughs> he's doing it he's doing it i don't know i mean it was such a cool moment and honestly most of the moments i have are, are similar to that you know just mm-hmm. some of the stories besides the almost dying stories you know the coolest part of instructing were those moments, you know, cause kids, kids mm-hmm. show up and they, this has been their dream their whole life. And so, you know, they're stressed and when they get it and they understand it and they do it well, it's just, it was super fun, super cool to watch and super uh, rewarding. So. It looks like since you won't, since you're not going to be flying a whole lot, you'll be spending more time with Buffy who is, uh, <laughs> who's your new dog. And uh, uh, I was going to yeah. say, you must love the B-52 enough to name your dog Buffy. Okay, there's a story. There's a story behind that, Because it's not named too. Warthog. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, first of all, I don't fly the Warthog. But here's the backstory. So yeah, yeah. When I, when I first was a brand new instructor at pilot training, I got two cats. And the two cats' oh, wow. names were Texan and Talon after the T6 and T38. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So I basically that's roped really myself cool. into naming her Buffy. Like I had to keep the theme. It just, it's just kind of, awesome. it just had to happen. Yeah. So I have Texan <laughs> Talon. When we were, Buffy. when we were growing up, you're talking to some av geeks here that had cats named Maverick and Goose. <laughs> of course yep. you did. Of course you did. So we understand that. Absolutely. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That's probably the most 100%. common pilot dog name. I feel like I've met one million Mavericks across yeah, the Air that's Force. Awesome. <laughs> oh, I'm <Yeah>. sure. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> that is that that's so funny. Um so as far as how long do you expect to actually be flying the B-52 because, you know, um, out this, uh, you know, just this year, 
uh, on May 19th, the Air Force actually put out a request for proposal to re-engine the B-52 because they obviously want to keep the B-52 in service uh, through 2050. So it's absolutely going to be crazy to see a B-52, you know, five, 10 years down the road uh, with a brand new engine. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, so w- is there a possibility you'd be flying one of these re-engine B-52s as well? Yeah, there's definitely a possibility. So I, I honestly, I don't know what my future holds. I don't know how long I'm going to stay in. Um, I have a minimum mm-hmm. of six years left. So, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. yes, I could potentially be, fly- be flying the B-52 for the rest of those six years. Um, so, and then if I choose to stay in longer as well, then yeah. Yeah, I would, I would definitely yeah. be. There's there's so many different opportunities though. Like I, as of right now, my plan is to stay in the B fifty two. But they always send people back to pilot training, or they always send. Okay. I mean, there's always the whole B twenty one program, and there's the T seven. Yeah, program. that's true. So there's so many different opportunities that, I, like, I'm not going to say I'm for sure going to be in the B fifty two because if if someone told me I could go fly the T seven, I would do that. Um, <laughs> But yeah, that's I, cool. yeah, so it just depends. But yeah, there's a huge possibility that I would I would see and fly uh, some of those new engine jets. That would be pretty cool. So, so, so what you're saying is um, if we see an Instagram post and you've got some new pets that are named either Raider, Lancer or Spirit, we'll know something's going on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was literally thinking about that yesterday. I was like, what am I going to do if I ever get a new pet? What would I do? No, I'm not planning on it. I'm, I'm Buffy has put me out my wits for now. So no, no. New pets for I certainly loved aviation from a pretty young age as a kid. I grew up uh, in Duluth, Minnesota, and there's a an F-16 guard unit that was fairly close to my house. So I got to see them fly over quite a bit. Um, nice. Had some family members that uh, flew in general aviation and got a, got a plane ride or two with them. And maybe, I don't know, maybe I saw Top Gun at a very uh, impressionable age. <laughs> um, <Yeah>. But <laughs> for, for whatever reason, I was always pretty interested in it as a, as a young kid. Um, but never really considered it as a, uh, as a career uh, mm-hmm. or a profession, um, until I think, I mean, I was in college by the time I really kind of came back to it. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yeah. So initially I went to, uh, a college called St. Olaf college in Southern Minnesota, uh, which was a great place and it was a great school, but, um, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was following my passion, uh, uh-huh. per se. Uh-huh. And I kind of did a little thought experiment where I told myself, if you could do any job in the world, like no matter how crazy, like what would it be? It's like, well, I would, I would love to be a pilot for the Air Force or a fighter pilot um, nice. specifically. And, you know, at first I was like, well, that's stupid. Like, it's really <laughs> hard to be a fighter pilot. Um, mm-hmm. But it was just one of those like earworms, you know, that kind of like gets in your mind. And you just can't get rid of it. Um, yeah. Your, your, so, inner, your inner av geek was talking. It was, and I couldn't, I couldn't shut it up. Um, and so finally, uh, there was sort of a friend of the family that flew um, F-16s at the guard unit up in Duluth. And I asked him, like, all right, theoretically, like, how would I go about, you know, doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, well, you should just go to the academy, um, which also seemed really crazy. Because um, <laughs> I, had, I had applied to, like, I looked at going through ROTC, you know, or enlisting and then trying to go from enlisted uh, to officer and go that uh-huh. route. And, this guy was an academy grad, so of course he was—he was probably biased and told me I should look into the academy. <laughs> um, 
And so I jumped through all the hoops to apply to the academy as sort of as a, a freshman and a sophomore at St. Olaf. Um, and it was kind of nice because I was like, well, this is a real long shot. So mm -hmm. here's what's going to happen. I'm going to put in all this work and I'm not going to get in. And then I'll be like, well, at least I tried. And then I can just like move on with my life, mm -hmm. you know? And then I got, I got the, the letter that said I got in and I was like, oh no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, cause now I've, you know, put in all this effort, you know, like, well, this is like, this is pretty intimidating opportunity, but you know, I, you know, wouldn't have a hair on my ass if I didn't say I would try and go. So yeah, now it's all become real. So after two years in college, I, I ended up transferring to the academy, and they don't just bring you in at whatever year you were. You you start over as a as a dually or a freshman. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Yeah. Wow. So I did I did the the six year plan uh, through college. You know, <laughs> call myself the super duper senior there by the time yeah. I finally graduated. Um, <laughs> And was lucky enough to get a to get a pilot slot uh, out of the academy. So first, I was like, well, before I try to do this pilot thing, I should see if I actually like flying, mm -hmm. you know, because I hadn't done it, you know, outside of like a commercial flight in a long time. So I, you know, <laughs> went out and got an instructor and like um, learned to fly a Cessna 152. I never even got my my private pilot's license before going to the academy. It turned out initially I was really bad at flying because flying is <laughs> hard. You know, it was like, wow, this is actually like kind of tough <laughs> flying a little airplane around. It was yeah. you know, kind of a, yeah. Not a, I mean, but I did enjoy it. And I think uh -huh. that's what counted. And I was like, well, at least I like it. You know? Yeah. I may not be God's gift to aviation yet, but <laughs> still not, but we're, we're working on it. Um, so that was kind of like the the first, like, I got to at least give this a try before I like go all out. On this yeah. Thing. But, yeah. Um, I was, I flew, um, I actually flew gliders at the academy. Um, and I was a instructor in the gliders there. And what that kind of got me, oh, there's cool. a lot of intangibles that it kind of got me for, for helping me through pilot training, but it meant that I kind of went straight to the T six, um, and didn't have to do what they call uh, initial flight screening or initial flight training, uh, oh. down in Pueblo where they fly the little, uh, diamond thing yeah. or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to do that. Um, and so I, I ended up going straight to the T six, um, in pilot training. And then the neat thing about Shepard is that's where they do, Euro NATO joint jet pilot training or NGIPT. Um, mm -hmm. and there everybody goes from the T6 to the T38. Oh, um, cool. And there's a lot of partner nice. nations, obviously from NATO that fly there. So that was a, a cool aspect of the experience, but it was kind of, it's at its inception, it was meant to produce fighter pilots. Mm -hmm. um, nowadays it's, it's sort of still the case. Like they still try to instill the sort of the cultural aspects of being a fighter pilot in the students, but you still, can track to any airplane uh, in the inventory, uh, aside from helicopters, yeah, um, or Ospreys. But actually, I think people do. You can go to Ospreys from Egypt now, but yeah. So it was still we knew we were all going to T-38s, which was nice because we didn't really have to compete uh, the same way that guys at other bases do to find out if they're going T-1s or T-38s, uh, whichever they want to go into. Mm -hmm. So we all knew we were going to fly fast jets at some point, even if it was just <laughs> yeah. T-38. <laughs> um, which really was intimidating to think about because, you know, you show up and you'd see them fly over and I'm sure you guys have seen them fly. And oh, they're, yeah. They're fast. Yeah. You know, they got little, yeah. stubby, little stubby wings, so to stand here. They, <laughs> they really got to haul the mail. A little, little uh, different than the uh, glider flying. Yes. <laughs> Quite yeah. different. <laughs> for, me, for me, the T6 felt fast. You know, and you, yeah, it's like seriously. whenever you start flying a new, you know, you go to each level, you know, whether it's the T6 or the T38 or, or to fighters, um, it's always completely overwhelming the first time you do it. And you're like, how could I ever be good at this? this <laughs> yeah. Really 
Um, but you just kind of chip away at it, usually by being completely overwhelmed for weeks at a time. And eventually mm -hmm. you start to kind of, you just absorb enough experience and knowledge and your brain just starts to kind of function at the speed of the airplane, if you will. Yeah. And so yeah. you start to feel less, you know, behind the airplane, uh, if you will. The academy has a small airfield on the campus, uh, if you guys have seen that or, or heard of that. And um, mm -hmm. that airfield kind of exists to like serve as a way to expose cadets to aviation um, as mm -hmm. they're, you know, thinking about whether or not they want to pursue being a pilot in the Air Force, you know, or think about other career fields. And there's a couple different programs down there. Uh, the glider program is one of them. Um, they have a fairly large fleet of pretty nice gliders. Um, and the cool part about that program and some of the other programs as well that I'll get to here in a second is that there's a, a short kind of exposure course that you can take as like a freshman or a sophomore um, and basically get up to the point where you solo in a glider. Mm. And I don't know if it's just less expensive, you know, than the powered flight uh, side of things mm -hmm. or it's, it's been around for a while, though. Mm -hmm. um, but the cool part is after that, you're, you're able to apply and, and become an instructor in the glider. And as an instructor, as a cadet instructor, you basically teach other cadets through that basic exposure program, as well as teach uh, future cadet instructors uh, that are coming through that are younger than you uh, in, in your later years at the academy. Um, and that's really cool because it kind of first gets you that initial exposure program where you're able to solo the glider, you're able to get some you know air under you and kind of see if that's for you. Then it also kind of like teaches kind of the airmanship and gives you the experience of not only understanding flying the gliders, but teaching others uh, how to do it too. And I think that does a lot for, for guys kind of like maturity from an airmanship standpoint. And mm -hmm. I know it helped oh, me a lot too uh, when it came time to go to pilot training. Um, yeah. Even though, you know, the, the physical, like the stick and rudder wasn't the same, you know, the, the principles weren't necessarily the same, you know, in a powered aircraft going much faster than a glider, but. Mm -hmm. At least I had the experience of being like, you know, no, I can, I can do this. I can, I can get better and I can eventually get to the point where I'm comfortable teaching someone else, you know, or flying by myself or, or whatever it may mm -hmm. be. But we could talk for hours about, about the, the soaring uh, program there at the Academy. Um, but yeah, some of the most, some of the most like, uh, meaningful experiences for me, uh -huh. um, were when guys would come in and they were kind of signed up for the program is kind of like either not that it wasn't their choice, but they're kind of like, yeah, I guess I'll do it. And they weren't necessarily that into it. And they're like, yeah, do you want to be a pilot? And they're like, no, not really. But I thought, you know, maybe I'll just try this glider thing out and see how it goes. And after a few flights with them, you know, they start, they realize like, hey, this is actually really fun. You know, I can, mm -hmm. I can do this. And you kind of see that after being exposed to aviation there at the airfield, they kind of like maybe rethought their, um, their career choices. And maybe after thinking they wouldn't be a pilot, uh, pursued that, you know, as a career and hopefully it ended up working out for them. But just kind of like seeing that, like, instilling like the same excitement for aviation that I'd had since a young kid uh, and someone that really hadn't, you know, ever been around it before being at the Academy was, was super rewarding. Um, so sometimes it functioned less as a weed out, you know, or I'm sure some people did it were like, Nope, not for me. <laughs> yeah. But, right. And the cool part was the guys that really necessarily weren't that interested in flying. Um, but became interested after, after doing that. Mm -hmm. um, so that cool. was one of the coolest yeah. parts for me. I, nice. I, rem I remember uh, uh, when we went down to Nellis Air Force Base and covered uh, Aviation Nation 2019, and mm -hmm. uh, they had a really cool Air Force uh, glider demonstration that they did uh, both days we were there. Yeah, it was and the I, academy I, team, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was, and it was really cool. Those things are actually pretty maneuverable. They you are. Really, uh, you don't really realize 
they see a demo. Yeah, I think those gliders can pull up to about seven Gs or so. Oh, which wow. Which is pretty impressive considering yeah, the, the wingspan on them. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so they, <laughs> once you are an instructor in the gliders, there's a couple other opportunities. There's two uh, competition teams, and one of them is the is the uh, aerobatic team, and they go out and do competitions and air shows and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, and that's a really cool, really cool opportunity for guys. They usually pick, um, at least when I was there, is usually like four to five people per year. Um, out of the, I'm trying to remember how many per class. It seemed like when I was there, there was about like 40 to 50 guys that would end up becoming instructors. Mm-hmm. Um, and then out of that, they would pick usually around five guys for the, for the aerobatic team. And the second team was the, they called the sailplane racing team. And I was lucky <laughs> enough to get picked up for, for that team. Um, and so that was nice. my experience. <laughs> These were learning Just, so much on this episode. I, I didn't know, know there was such thing as a as a glider racing team. Wow. Yeah. Right? So, <laughs> so believe it or not, there's like a pretty there's a pretty healthy community of you know sailplane racing enthusiasts out there, and a lot of oh, them wow. are, are old retired Air Force pilots. Um, oh. But the idea is you would go up and find thermals and and stay airborne for as long as possible and sort of fly a, a course, you know. Yeah, you know, you know, twenty five, fifty, hundred miles, um, and try to basically fly as far as you could, as fast as you could, using the thermals you're able to find. That's usually cool. usually on hot summer days in the in the southwest. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of the, one of the biggest maturity kind of generators for me, because um, after only flying a glider for a year or two, you know, I end up I ended up flying a couple five and a half, six hour flights alone in a glider uh, oh, through that wow. through that program, which was definitely eye-opening from uh with getting the experience and you know realizing that you know to a certain extent you have to be kind of self-reliant you know in the airplane by yourself which definitely paid dividends later on what was your experience like um transitioning from the t6 to the t38 and give us the story of the first time that you did you break the sound barrier in uh in the t38 i did it wasn't uh it's not something we did very often. Um, uh-huh. the, the T38, as you might know, is pretty thrust efficient. Yeah. Um, so it's very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you get into a bad spot in it, you know, it's got some pretty old kind of small engines on it and there's mm-hmm. not always enough power, you know, to get you out of those bad situations. So it was a really mm-hmm. interesting aircraft to fly, both because it was ancient. Um, most of the tails we flew, you know, were from the, they were built in the 1960s and had yeah. you know, 20,000 airframe hours on them. Oh, geez. Yeah. Um, and I remember the first time I got in a T-38 um, and it was kind of one of those feelings where like reality isn't quite the same as what you imagine it would be. Mm-hmm. And I kind of got in, I was like, is this it? Like, it feels like I'm in a go-kart. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. we're, taxi- we're taxiing you know, down the runway and the whole, you know, it doesn't taxi quite straight and you have the canopy open and it's kind of like rattling back and forth and swaying around. It doesn't like instill you know, it's not, it doesn't feel sturdy, you know, it doesn't uh-huh. instill a whole lot of confidence initially. And you're sitting in the front seat and trying to do all the things you practice in the sim. And you're just like, it's, it's pretty overwhelming. The first time you push up the, push up the throttles and you realize that you're almost immediately going faster than you ever went uh, in the mm-hmm. T6. Mm-hmm. And I was immediately behind the airplane, you know, wow. like you're covering miles much faster than you're used to. And so you're having to run through your checklists and fly your procedures, you know, that much faster. And that was like a big mental shift, but 
it was such a, it felt like your whole perspective changed, you know, you're thinking yeah. not just in terms of miles, but now tens of miles sort of as your, your immediate outlook, you know, you got to be thinking pretty far ahead of yourself. Um, and it ended up being a, a very fun airplane to fly, especially the way they taught us to fly it. Um, but just going from kind of the T6, which felt like flying, you know, an old pickup truck or a, a muscle car, maybe yeah, if you will, yeah. where, you know, it's great for cloud chasing. It can turn really tight. You know, it, you know, it's just kind of a nice, fun little airplane. You're flying the T-38, which is old and it's got a lot of, you know, special considerations. You don't get yourself in a bad situation. They're like, all right, we're going to do a loop. And I remember that was one of the first aerobatic things that we did. Mm -hmm. We would need 10,000 vertical feet to do a loop in a T-38. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so it's not, it doesn't turn very sharp. Um, yeah. Wow. But I remember, you know, you get up to, you know, 25,000 feet at the top of your loop. And you're coming down through the bottom of the loop and the ground rush was just incredible. You know, you're going oh, 350 wow. knots and you're like, wow, we are, we are moving and I'm running out of space very fast. Yeah. <laughs> so initially, you know, it's everything from just trying not to fly out of the airspace and the dang thing. Um, yeah. But eventually farther down the pipe in the T-38, you get to do, we called it the, I think it was the zoom and boom mm -hmm. flight is what we called it. And we had to coordinate for like a special flight profile because you have to get up pretty high. You know, we would get up, you know, close to in, in the mid to high 30s and then basically dump the nose over into a pretty steep dive, you know, with the throttles, you know, full up and try to get as fast as we could and, and break the sound barrier. Um, oh, and it was wow. something I was really, really, really excited for because <clears throat> I always wanted to do, you know, break the sound barrier. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, it was kind of underwhelming. Um, because, yeah. you know, the airplane is designed for it. And so you're, you're waiting for some, you know, dramatic thing to happen when you, <laughs> when you cross the sound barrier. And I remember the only thing I saw was my, as, as we went from like 0.99, you know, over to 1.0, um, the steam gauges uh, for the altimeter and the airspeed kind of like flickered a little bit, you know, and they just oh. kind of like jiggled a little bit because yeah. <laughs> something with the, the air, you know, the supersonic airflow over the, over the pitot tubes basically made them wiggle around and kind of read inaccurately for a second. Oh, that's and then at that point, I was already getting close to because you can't go below a certain altitude mm. when you're supersonic, uh, based on the airspace we were flying in. Mm -hmm. And about the time, I was like, "Wow, okay, that's it. I guess we're supersonic now." And then I was like, "Oh crap, I gotta pull up so I don't, you know, break through the floor and sonic boom somebody's house." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was fun because we we ended up having a little competition because everyone wanted to see who could go the fastest. So everybody oh. on their ride was trying to make sure that they flew the profile just perfectly, you know, because they maybe push over to uh, not a negative G, but less than one G uh -huh. to kind of get like the least amount of drag on the airplane and try to accelerate as quickly as possible. And so, you know, we'd come down and we'd write up, you know, I got to 1.22 Mach, you know, and somebody would come down, well, I got to 1.23 Mach, you know, or whatever, <laughs> and we'd yeah. give each other a hard time. Um, but it was, it was a much bigger deal than in the T-38 um, versus... Now I'm kind of spoiled and we go, we go supersonic quite a bit and we don't really yeah. think about it as much anymore. Yeah. Um, Jeez. So how, that's, uh, that's incredible. How do the gauges <laughs> react in the F-35 compared to the T-38 when you cross the sound barrier? So it's interesting in, in the F-35, the, the gauges are rock solid. Um, but the, the jet itself, you know, it's fly by wire. And there's slightly different control laws that function at, at above the Mach versus below the Mach. And so in between kind of in that transonic region, when you start to get, you know, certain parts of the airplane have supersonic flow over them, but certain other parts don't yet. 
the jet actually feels like starts to feel like it's on skates for a second or two and the nose kind of like moves around like hunts around and it's this really weird feeling like all of a sudden you're like why is the jet moving like this and if you look behind you you can see the control services just turning super sharp to try to basically keep the airplane airplane steady and it does that for about point for about 0.03 mach from like 0.97 up to uh, you cross the sound barrier and then after that it's like dead steady again wow it's a little bit different but it was it's a, you always know when you're about to go supersonic if you're not thinking about it because all of a sudden the jet starts kind of shimmying a little bit and you're like oh make mm-hmm. sure you're in the right right airspace because there's certain parts of our airspace where we can't go supersonic because there's people underneath mm-hmm. us and so yeah. so from that during that transition how much time passes uh it, it depends you know if i'm just in mill power you know and i'm descending a little bit you know you might be kind of stuck in that transonic region um because obviously we don't have super crews quite like the uh, the F twenty two does, um, and mm-hmm. if we're just in mill power, we we really can't cross the sound barrier unless we're descending. Um, but if you're in like full afterburner and you're just trying to like get really fast, it's really only like a second that it'll kind of oh, wow. shimmy a okay. little bit, and then you'll be through the, oh, wow. through the mock. Mm-hmm. And I always thought I knew what I wanted to fly. You know, I was I was like, yeah, you know, like I think I'd love to fly something, you know multi-role you know like there's really cool airplanes out like out there like i know i want to fly fighters and, and hopefully you know i was good enough for that but you don't really know um mm-hmm. at the time i was like well the f-22 is just an amazing airplane and that's really cool um the f-35 was you know still fairly unproven you know i knew some of mm-hmm. the guys that were going to the first b course but i didn't really know anybody that that flew the jet and none of my instructors had either mm-hmm. um, and you have instructors from a lot of different backgrounds and you know they're all kind of biased and like you know Every F-16 pilot's going to tell you that the F-16 is the best airplane ever made. You know, every, <laughs> every Strike Eagle pilot is going to say, you know, like, well, the Strike Eagle's, you know, the coolest airplane ever made. And we do, like, really cool missions, all that kind of stuff. And every A-10 pilot's going to tell you the same thing. And so sometimes it can be hard, hard to kind of, like, figure out, you know, what's best for you. And um, I always thought I wouldn't have a problem choosing. You know, I'd grown up watching F-16s and, you know, I thought that was a really cool airplane and I knew a lot of instructors that flew it and they talked really, really highly of it. But when it finally came time to like put down my, my wish list, um, mm-hmm. I, I was just so like, Oh my gosh, like this is it. You know, this is finally like my time to like put down and like rank everything oh, I wanted. And I was yeah, like, I was struck yeah. with a horrible indecision, you know, cause there were a lot of great options out there. Um, and I ended up putting the F 35 first and it wasn't, it wasn't always first on my list. Um, and a lot of time, and it was one of my flight commanders that actually kind of sat us down and said like, Hey guys, like, I know we always talk good about like all these other airplanes and they're great airplanes, but you know, seriously consider, you know, putting something like the F-35 high on your list. Cause not only do they need guys, but it's, it's kind of like the way of the future. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and I think that helped, but I think the thing that helped me the most was when somebody, one of my other instructors said, he's like, Hey, don't choose an airplane, like choose a mission. You know, choose a mission type that is meaningful mm-hmm. to you because that's at the end of the day, you know, that's that's why you're doing this is to accomplish the mission. So choose something that you think you would, you know, find meaning in um, and something that would kind of inspire you to like be the best that you could be at it. And so then that kind of made me think about it a lot differently. Um, you know, on the one hand, there are a lot of single role fighters out there like the A-10 or the F-22 mm-hmm. or the F-15C, you know, where they're either just air to ground or just air to air. Um, mm-hmm. And there's, you know, more of the 
the jacks of all trades, if you will, like the F-15E and the F-16 and now the F-35. Mm-hmm. But what really intrigued me about the F-35 and also to a certain extent, the F-16 uh, is the, the seed mission, the suppression mm-hmm. of enemy air defenses. Yeah, that's cool. And it kind of came down to, you know, like everybody, you know, fighter pilots can certainly have a rep of, you know, it's, it's always about us. You know, we are the mission, you know, like we're the cool dudes, like whatever. Um, <laughs> but I think what really drives a lot of fighter pilots in, in reality is kind of, um, making other people safer, you know, for doing their job mm-hmm. for A-10s. That means supporting guys on the ground, you know, in the close air support mission, mm-hmm. you know, for F-22s, it's about making other aircraft safe by, you know, doing the escort role and, and fighting air to air. And the one that really appealed to me sort of as like from a technological standpoint, um, was, was seed. Cause you know, you're out there trying to protect other airplanes airborne, you know, by taking down enemy air defenses uh, before mm-hmm. they have a chance to shoot them down. Um, and it's everybody that I talked to that had done that mission, you know, usually it was F 16 block 50 guys, you know, found mm-hmm. that mission to be super compelling, really difficult. Um, but they also found that you're also in a multi-role platform. So you end up doing the other stuff too. You end up doing a lot of air to air, um, close air support, you know, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of saw the F 35 as like, Hey, not only is this, you know, one of the ways of the future for the air force and how we how we do fighter aviation. Um, but it's, we kind of had an inkling that like that was going to be one of the main roles of the F-35 was seed. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what I ended up seizing on and ended up putting it first, uh, on my list and was, um, uh, fortunate enough to get it, but I really had no idea. Mm. Um, and the reason was I had, I had failed what many people say is the most important flight in pilot training. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's like, I was, I was feeling pretty good about myself. You know, like I knew I, you know, I wasn't like the best of the best or anything, but like I'd done reasonably well in pilot training. I thought I had a pretty good chance to get a, get a fighter. And I just had one of those days, you know, where like, I felt pretty prepared and I showed up for my, it was a two ship, uh, tactical formation ride, my check ride in the T-38. And it was kind of looked at as like, oh, this is kind of like where they really see if you have what it takes to be a, a, a fighter pilot. At least that mm-hmm. was the rumor. Mm-hmm. And I just totally dorked it away. You know, most <laughs> oh, of the flight went well. And I, I just did like, I did the dumbest error ever where, you know, I wasn't paying attention to my altitude and I just, I just blasted through, uh, an altitude that was given to me by air traffic control. Oh, and, you broke the hard deck. Uh-oh. Oh yeah. Flew right through it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I hard deck my t- ass. We nailed that son of a bitch. <laughs> Sorry. I, my, I my was only below the hard deck for a couple of seconds. Uh, yeah. You know, all right. You know, I, try, I try to tell the instructor, you know, I saw no danger. Um, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> so you took it. He, he did not, he did not look at it the same way that I did. And so I walked out of there with a, with a failure, you know, and a bunch of downgrades and like all this other stuff. And I was so oh, down. I was wow. like, Oh man, like that was a pretty important ride. And like, it kind of like threw things up in the air for me. I was like, man, I don't really know. Like, you know, <clears> if <throat> I'm going to get my first choice anymore. Um, but oh wow. Like everybody else, you know, I, w- I was far from the only guy with, with a lot of, you know, uncertainty going into drop night. Um, yeah. Cause you know, you don't, you don't even know what's in the drop, you know, they could have yeah. a million fighters for one class and then, you know, have like one or two fighters for the next class. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very much in the dark, just like the rest of us going into drop night, you know, and they had us kind of facing the crowd, you know, you got some family in the audience. Uh, my brother was there, you know, Lydia, uh, she's my girlfriend at the time was there and all my friends. And you're kind of like, facing the crowd and they like kind of roast you for a little bit, um, tell a funny story about you. And then oh. like at the end, they like put up on the projector behind you, like what you got. 
And I just remember like everybody started cheering and I turned around and I saw there was like a big F-35 like on the, on the screen behind me. And I was so excited, you know, I was, oh, wow. Yeah. You know, the, oh, awesome. a little bit, a little bit later I got nervous about it. It's like, Oh man, that's going to be, it's going to be tough. You know, that's going to be, you know, flying fighters is the real deal. And I hope I'm ready for this. But at the time I was just, I was so excited you know, you're celebrating yeah. with all your friends and, oh yeah. um, it was, it was a, definitely a high point night for me uh, just cause it, it went kind of how I hoped it would. Okay, so that was a little longer than I expected. <laughs> That's, okay. That's okay. We, we, you know, we had to get all the best moments in. It takes. Well, it is. It's it's hard to There's edit so all many the, of them. These wonderful interviews, you know, down into little bite-sized snippets. Um, speaking of bite-sized. Okay, okay, Tony. Um, I, we'll say it. Thank you for doing all the editing. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. okay. I was just going to leave it I as a read, but you're welcome. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm just kidding. In Thank the, you, uh, In the show notes, you're welcome. In in the show notes, uh, I'll have this broken down as to who uh, appears at what time, so you can uh, you can kind of check that out. I just recommend listening to the whole damn thing because it's going to be really, really good. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's, it, it, was, it was a lot of fun going through all those. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So thank you again, everybody, for listening to the Ramp Check podcast, especially this uh, special uh, Veterans Day um, edition, honoring those who have served our country and are who still are serving our country. Uh, Ramp Check podcast is available, of course, anywhere you can find a podcast, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Pandora, Google, Stitcher. I know I'm forgetting somebody, but you can also go to our <laughs> website and listen to it that way. Um, yes. 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 So uh, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel, uh, the Ramp Swag Store. Get on there. Buy some shit because Christmas is coming fast. That's right. Um, there's We've got almost 1,100 products on there now, uh, lots of different designs, and uh, I'm still adding uh, new designs weekly. So. All right. I was just about to upload some more uh, uh, tonight and tomorrow. So oh, nice. Awesome. Anyway. Great way to show your support. Buy some Ram swag and wear it proud. You can also obviously go to uh, our Patreon page. The link is on our website, uh, www.ramcheckglobal.com. And uh, Ryan, anything to add? Yeah, don't forget to mention um, rampcheckreport.com. I know you guys were talking about the podcast, Patreon, and the Ramp Swag Store, but I don't want everyone to forget where they can get the latest and greatest aviation news at rampcheckreport.com. Perfect. Yes. And Great. brother, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you do our send off. Talking about the usual one. Like you have a special one planned for Veterans Day. <laughs> <laughs> Just, happy Veterans Day. Good day. <laughs> <laughs>